And welcome to Talk Me to Death. I'm your host, Amanda. I'm here with my co-host, Andrew. Hello. And our guest today is uh, Valina. G'day. <laughs> An Oz friend of ours who um, is a veterinary technician. And we're going to be talking today about death in the context of veterinary medicine. So welcome, Valina. Thank you for having me on the podcast. <laughs> me and welcome. my dead dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little weird that you brought it in here, but it's okay. It's all right. It's in a body bag. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, I should, uh, I probably should have done a better intro there. Valina is also the host of the very popular podcast, I Killed Your Dog. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. Which is a look at uh, the inside world of veterinary medicine. Not necessarily death specific, but I no, think there's a lot yeah. of death in there. <laughs> Absolutely. And not always inside. It depends <laughs> on how they die. Yeah, it depends how they get brought in. Yeah. So... I don't even know where to start with death in veterinary medicine. Well, what would you like to know, first and foremost? I, well, I, I would like to start with something because I always wonder about this because, and I'm sure maybe you realized this at some point, but it's the thing of you got into veterinary mes- medicine because you love animals, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but the thing is, the more you love animals, the more you're going to actually see them die. Oh, yeah. It's which actually, is really a funny paradox. It is, it is quite and a Did paradox. you remember when you figured that out or did you know that kind of going in? Uh, I guess, I mean, I'm going to tell you a morbid story uh, straight off the bat. Sounds about right. Yeah. So when I first got into veterinary medicine, it was sort of by accident. I had plans to go into the police force and I wanted to uh, be part of the dog squad. And so whilst I was waiting to get into the academy, I thought I'll just do this like garbage course of like, I guess we call it TAFE. It's like a tertiary education after high school. And I thought I'd just do this course in animal like husbandry and housing and whatever so that it would give me a leg up when I got into the academy. And I did that one one year course and then afterwards the teachers happened to be all veterinary nurses or veterinarians and they said to me, oh, you'd make a really great vet nurse or a vet tech as they call it here in North America. Um, you should do it if just another additional year. And I was like, yeah, all right, I like animals. always grew up with animals. I was always mucking around with them as kids. And anyway, one of the jobs that we had was to look after the aviary. Is it called an aviary? Yeah, for birds. Uh, For birds, yes. Thank you. Uh, I was like, the avian aviary? I think it's aviary. Aviary, Aviary, that's that's the word. Thank you, thank you. I was going to say apiary, but that's for bees. (laughs) Bees, yeah. yeah. (laughs) What a great veterinary person I am. I didn't even know what they call it, but (laughs) I was in birds. So we had to look you after. You were birdcage yeah. attendant. Birdcage attendant. That was what I was doing as a student. And there's like the birds are like all finches and Australian wildlife birds or whatever. And my job was to go and check all the nests as a student. And often there'd be like mice in the oh, nests yeah. or a baby mouse or whatever. And if we found mice, we had to dispose of them because anything in Australia that is not native has to be destroyed. Right. And so I was maybe a few months into being a student of veterinary nursing we hadn't even fully set up the actual veterinary uh, clinic that we were using at the school yet which was supposed to be a fully functioning clinic for us to learn in and we didn't even have like the the proper equipment or drugs or anything and I said to the teacher I'm like hey I found these pinkies baby mice in the bird nest in the finch nest what do I do and uh, she's like look I don't know how to tell you this and I don't really want to know about it but you've got to kill them and I was like, what? Is this like some kind of initiation into veterinary medicine? And she goes, look, humane euthanasia is considered anything within like, I don't know, three seconds. 
or something like that. Right. They have to be just – and with pinkies, I believe there's uh, things that are considered humane is like you can snap their neck or you can obviously inject them with like a pentobarbital or um, – which is an overdose of an anesthetic. I, I don't know what your audience is going to be like, so I can explain <laughs> further. But anyway, or you can put them in the freezer and they just basically go cold and they die straight right. away because they're so small. They, have no they fur. can't have fur, right? Yeah. And so she goes, look, you just got to have to be creative. We don't have any pentobarbital in the, in the school clinic, so you need to kill them because you can't. it's illegal for us to just release them and just let them do their thing. Sure. And it's cruel to just – because the mum mouse is going to run away. Yeah. So it's cruel to just, like, leave them there. Sure. And, so, and they're all just birds that are, like, parrots and parakeets and stuff. It's not like those birds are, like, crows and stuff that are going to eat them. So I'm like, oh, what do I do? And so I don't know how to tell you this. Like, I put them in a glove. Yeah closed the glove and and then I got a I just put them out on the pavement and I got another slab like a brick or something mm-hmm. and then I dropped that slab of, of bricks on that'll do it on the glove and they died mm-hmm. instantly yep mm-hmm. and that and I I mean doing me wrong like I'm mortified but I felt like it was an initiation of like like a I bit, yeah. and some people who have bleeding hearts wouldn't be able to do that no and it's not to say that you got to be a cold-hearted person to be in veterinary veterinary medicine but you do need to have some sense of like Euthanasia, compartmentalization, but also euthanasia is actually a form of treatment. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. So yeah. that yeah. is treatment. 100%. And I was quite proud of myself, to be honest. And the only way I remembered that I could do that was because one time I caught a carp fish, okay. which is an invasive species in Australia. Yeah. And I was just fishing for fun. I wasn't planning on eating it or nothing. So I had no knife. Yeah. And I can't release it back into the thing. Sure. And my boyfriend at the time was like, well, you caught it. you got to kill it. And I was like, oh, what do I do? And it's icky and I don't like fish or slimy or gross. So I just got a big rock and I just smashed it on the head. Fair enough. <laughs> it it works. And it worked. It killed straight away. But the thing is, I just thought, oh, I'm never going to be able to tell anyone this. And then when I actually now I'm like 13 years into veterinary medicine and the more I talk to other people in the, in the industry – They've also done weird, crazy things like that, yeah. whether before they've started vet med or after or during. And then you're like, oh, these are my people. Interesting. <laughs> and so you, you, you're surprised because everyone always thinks veterinary med is just like you're hugging puppies and kittens all day. Right. And, you know, it's so no. cute. And you see, not you see the sickest of the sick when you get a healthy puppy that comes in for a vaccine. Everyone stops what they're doing and they go into the consult room and they're like, oh, my God, look how cute this puppy. Because yeah. we always see them at death's door yeah. or at yeah. their worst. And so, like, whenever I, I – I just specifically remember my teachers in in school that would always say to us, you know, you have to be able to realize that you're not doing this just because you love animals. You love them so much that mm-hmm. you are going to be able to honor them in death as well. Yeah. And now that I've been doing this a while and I've seen all sorts of death and all sorts of trauma in those cases – you just have a, a new understanding and new appreciation of death, not in a bad way, mm-hmm. but uh, it's almost like I respect it more. Of and course, I respect yeah. the people who have to deal with death on a daily basis. Yeah. So, yeah, that's now, a little bit about that. Having having worked in Australia and Canada, and mm-hmm. and you you sort of mentioned it, uh, you know, Australia has really really strict like laws around biological species mm-hmm. and animal imports and and all of that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So, having worked in both contexts, do you feel like there is a difference in the approach to euthanasia mm. between the two countries or the frequency or absolutely absolutely? And it was a bit of a shock when I came here at how more relaxed they are about certain things. 
So I feel like the approach in North America is a little bit more like they kind of try and save everything. Not always, like you do sometimes have to be a bit cutthroat, but in Australia it's very clear. If it's an invasive species, so not native to Australia, doesn't matter what it is, bird, bug, you know, Canadian. fox. Canadian. <laughs> death. Oh. With the Canadians, we bash them with maple leaves. Oh, that's Because nice. <laughs> it's only, only to be honourable. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we, we beat Australians with cans of Fosters, so. <laughs> that's joke's on you. Fosters <laughs> is owned by Americans. Ah. <laughs> But um, there is a big difference and we are very clear about what uh, needs to be euthanized. Whereas in, and I'll give you an example, in Australia, for example, there's no such thing as cat colonies. Hmm. So here I've noticed there are cat colonies in the sense where like there's just wild feral cats yeah. and the, I guess each province has their way of controlling it. But my understanding in BC is if there is an overpopulace of cat colony, then they will try and catch as many, trap them. And often they just neuter and spay them mm-hmm. and then re-release them. Yeah, mm. that would never happen in Australia. Mm. I remember one time I had a, I was working at like a shelter in Australia, and they uh, there was a lady that was like, "There's no such thing as you know cats killing you know cats invading our species." Blah blah blah. You guys are just cat killers, and and we were like, "No, there's like a bunch of cats that are just killing all of our." F- our, our birds, our native yeah. species, everything, and we have to catch them. And it's like you come in on one of those days where we are just carting thousands of cats into dead cats into trucks just so that we can clear up our country and keep our ecosystem going. Whereas here, they mm. just spay and neuter them and then they release them. And I just think it's really bizarre that it they is. would do that. Not all the time. Often they do get euthanized as well. Sure. But I remember here, yeah, they just basically what they do is they cut the tip of the ear off in Canada once they've been spay or neutered and then re-released. And then uh, I guess if they make it or they die naturally in the wild or whatever, however they survive, they Mm. survive. But it's so that from a distance you can see that they're spayed or neutered. Right. So that Mm. there is a difference. And even so with like relocation, Australia is very specific. So if there's a, let's say a kangaroo species or just a mob of kangaroos, and that's literally what we call a group of kangaroos. Oh, really? It's a mob? It is a mob, (laughs) which I think is hilarious. Because of them, like, boxing around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they are, like, the fighting marsupial. <laughs> Absolutely. So. Well, they'll drag, like, dogs, farmers' dogs into, like, river Have you, you ever know, seen, you've seen that stuff. video of the guy that punches Punched him. Yeah, yeah, I'm actually surprised that he didn't get punched by yeah, the kangaroo. Yeah, that's what I've heard, back. yeah. Yeah, it's, I think the kangaroo was just so stunned at what happened that he didn't that's know That's what how it to looked react. like. I've never yeah, seen an animal. Like, a, if you want to morph in... Anthropomorphize. Anthropomorphize. Thank you. Anthropomorphize. Thank Anthrop- you. We, yeah, well, we're doing wow. well. We're doing well with aviary. Yeah, yeah. Aviary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you still can't do it. So if you want to make animals talk, mm. um, punch that's what we're trying to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I uh, know kangaroos, so if there's yeah. a, let's say there's a new estate getting built of houses and somehow the kangaroos get trapped because of the encroaching estates, you can't just collect that bunch of kangaroos as a native group and then just move him over to another place because then mm. it ruins like the ecosystem of wherever you're moving them to. There's an imbalance. So actually legally, unless they're an endangered species, they actually get culled. No. And there's kangaroo farms that are used for meat and whatnot. Sure. Kangaroos for us are kind of like the deer for you guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're kind of everywhere and annoying and yeah. no one really cares if they get hit by a car. Yeah. it's. I know when people come to our towns from they're like there's deer walking downtown it's like yeah "Yeah, they destroyed my garden yeah (laughs) so So, yeah that is probably the biggest difference and that was really interesting where i 
think in Australia people are just a little bit more understanding, hey, we're an island. We've seen so many mm-hmm. instances of where invasive species have ruined an ecosystem, such as the cane toad, if anyone's heard yeah. of the cane toad. And there's uh, also a couple of well-known extinct birds too, right? Oh, a bunch of them. Yeah. Like, it, and, that's, and that's the thing, because in reality, Australia doesn't really have any large carnivorous animals mm-hmm. that are native. And so when you bring in something like a fox, yeah, it just destroys yeah. the ecosystem. Whereas here I find like... Uh, we tend to be a little bit more like, oh, it's a squirrel. And we know squirrels are sort of pesty little things, mm-hmm. but for the most part, there are rehab centers and yep. whatnot for them. But for us, it's just native mm-hmm. native things. And I feel like there's not much of a native rule here. Mm-hmm. Even like you can't have a native pet as a pet in Australia. So everyone thinking that we have kangaroos and wombats as pets, that's completely false. Do you, have you known anyone that ha- has had? A, like it would be obviously a bad thing, but... Have oh you yeah. Know oh, pet he- kangaroos? Yeah, heaps of people. And like they've they- rescued <laughs> them and then like because like they found it as a youngling and then they couldn't like release it back into the wild and whatever. That's sort of like a gray area, but here, They don't make good pets though, do they? I, not I wouldn't think. Really? Yeah. Wombats probably better than kangaroos. Okay. But the thing is I had here I've noticed people can sort of have almost any pet they want with the correct license. Yeah. Give or take and obviously more so in the states depending on which state. But for example, here I've had people have pet sugar gliders, which are like Boy, little squirrel yeah. things, right? And they're an Australian native species. You cannot have that as a pet in Australia. Right. But people will have them as a pet and have them spayed and neutered, hmm. which I've had to do. And they're like, hey, you're the Australian. You're on this anesthetic. You're going to do the, the spay <laughs> and neuter on this like Australian marsupial. I said, no, this is illegal, like where sure. I'm from. Which meanwhile, as a child, when I was in grade two, I found... A, f- a little uh, sugar glider. Okay. I kept him in my pocket for a little while and uh, took him to school and whatever and I was feeding him a little bit of honey and nectar and whatnot. M- one day mum had gotten a big tub of Costco size. Costco wasn't around at the time but it was about that size of yeah. jar of honey and I turned my back and the little guy had drowned inside the the, the, the big tub oh of honey. Oh my goodness. goodness. He went he in won, on his own to have fell in and I turned around. I was a What a way to die. Oh my god! Oh. I was like, "Mom's gonna be so angry. I've ruined a whole bu- tub of honey." She was <laughs> so pissed off. Well, she yeah, that's like probably yeah, it was expensive, expensive honey. So. Yeah, <laughs> that is but a good way, way to go. Glorious in right. nectar. That can be actually a future episodes. Yeah, dream, uh, dream ways, ways to, to die. die. So <laughs> they, they are the main differences that I've noticed, and I do find people here are a little bit more. I don't know. They, oh, what's the word? In Australia, we're a bit more cruel to be kind, and they're a little bit nicer. Well, I was going to say, I feel like it's well trying to be nicer. It's it has probably a lot to do with the fact that I mean, there, and that's the thing. Canada is one of those places where, in some ways, it's like Australia. It's a vast area. There's mm. pockets of people, right? But there is also a giant absolutely farming contingency, huge right? agriculture. So if you're the the way people approach a, a bird that they would find on the road hit here, like mm. you know, if you find a bird. Uh, you'd be like, oh no, we need mm-hmm. to bring this to the vet or a rescue, or whatever. If you find a bird in Saskatoon, you just shoot the it. Farm, it's like, oh, yeah. get the get the gun, yeah, That's exactly, right. yeah. or whatever. So, I think there's a little bit to say about that because there is something that, like when you're a little more more farming and different things, people mm-hmm. have more of a practical. That's the same in Australia. I think a lot of people are a lot more practical. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. People in Australia mm-hmm. who are here. And I think North America, and it comes mm-hmm. to people, animals, everything. Everyone wants yeah. to save. Yeah, I have a lot of people right? bring me baby quails. We don't realize and I was that. Like, cool. Now you've. Oh they're boy. like, oh, we can't find the mum. And it's like either the mum will find them or just leave them because now 
the owl population actually yeah. started uh, having a problem with starvation just in the last few years, particularly in the Okanagan mm. Valley, because oh. people were taking away all these like, oh, I f- yeah, their food their source, food which, source. you know, just let nature take its course. Or like, oh, mm. baby bird fell out of its nest. What should I do? And they've already taken it. It's like either the mum will be there and feed it or it'll abandon it and something will eat it. And mm-hmm. Plus, quails get adopted. That's Other true. quails adopt that's them. True. It's that's true. really common. That's true. And so, I don't know, that's an interesting concept. Like, people are really trying mm-hmm. to save everything. It is, yeah. And I, I mean, I... There was a there was a uh, stretch of my life where I've been driving for twenty five years or so, and honestly, up until about maybe three four years ago, mm-hmm. about five years ago, I had never hit an animal, not even like really a bird, like while driving. And then I just started. I've hit just so many downhill from there. I've hit yeah. I've hit deer now. I've written off two wow. vehicles from deer. Um, couple, but like I had this sort of moment of like the first time I hit something cute Aww. was like a rabbit. I know. And I was like, oh, man. And, and, you know, it was like on the highway. It was over right away. But then the person I was driving with was like, well, I mean, now some sort Circle of other of animals life. are going to have a meal. Yeah. You're not going to go yeah. pick up that rabbit. So you just you have no idea how many other yeah. lives you just saved. That's true. Killing a rabbit. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I never thought of it that it's way. Not, it's not all. Uh, death is. It's interesting. I don't believe death is all that doom and gloom. Like, yes, there is sadness to no. it. It's part of life, and it's a matter of. You just say I that because you get paid I to do. kill things. I do, but it is. It's like a funeral yeah, director says the same thing, you know. Money. Yeah, it's it's it really, uh, you know, pearl caskets and brass <laughs> handles are all part of death. Well, I life. mean, it's certainly not the. It's it's definitely one of the hardest parts of my job, but also now that I've been doing this for quite some time, I've learned how to. I don't want to say enjoy it, but almost like find peace with it because it wasn't easy at the beginning. Like my very first euthanasia Mm -hmm. experience, I, I didn't even euthanize it. It was just a, I was maybe a week into working my very first job. I'm bright eyed, bushy tailed, 20, 20 year old kid. And I was working in this like multi-level practice and you had to go up the elevator to get to reception. And then sort of behind that area, all the closed doors, there's like a freezer and consult rooms and treatment room and whatever. And this gentleman came in and uh, he was like, I'm here to pick up my dog. And I just assumed it was like an alive one. And it, it was right. in the freezer. And it was just, I had an embarrassing moment, like just trying to get through the file. And then I'm like, oh, shit, it's dead. And he's clearly upset and whatever. And everyone's busy in the practice and like, Valina, just help this gentleman with the dog in the car. And it's not common anymore for people to take their pets home. Very oh, uncommon. Really uncommon. To choose home burial, maybe in the rural areas, but when you're in a in a town or a city, I've always done. I've always, always cremated yeah, or always buried. We're, we're, I've always. I've, mm. I actually used to always bury, and I would just bury in the middle yeah. of nowhere, super deep. Well, a lot of people you know, used to have do my own little right? spot, and now mm. cremation is so much more common. And we can certainly get into the different uh, options of cremation and aftercare with pets. But in this instance, it was like a big ridgeback. So I'm talking like a 40 kilo dog takes up basically the whole freezer, right? And the waiting room is full of people and this b- animal is bagged up and I have to like somehow respectfully wheel it. And I said to him, I go, why don't you double park the car at the front door and I'll wheel the dog down then you can put the dog in your vehicle. And so I'm like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to wheel this big giant dog in a bag just in front of the entire waiting room? And I'm like, I've never experienced like 
death or dealing like at this point in an animal setting and it's not like anyone had trained me specifically and so I just put a blanket over the whole gurney yeah. and I'm wheeling this animal into the elevator barely fits into this tiny ass elevator I'm squished in there with this big gurney it goes down I somehow get past all the people and he's pulled up there and the guy is like this big tough burly bloke you know like a trucker sort of dude and he's got his sunglasses on and I'm like I'm tiny, I'm 5'2", and I'm like, I'm going to help him take the dog in. I'm trying to be respectful, and I was always told just, you know, speak slowly and clearly and, you know, whatever. And um, and I'm like, do you need a hand? He's like, no. Nah. He goes, come on, Maxie, you're my best mate. And he's just bawling his eyes out, and he puts oh. him in his bag and just puts him in the boot of the car. And I just start bawling my eyes out because I just didn't, <laughs> I didn't know how to respond or react. And it was such a shock to my system. Sure. To, see that interaction and you don't expect a yeah. guy like that to be so emotional that guys can't be sure. emotional but it was just no. very confronting for me at that moment mm-hmm. and then just the more i got to experience those moments i learned how to be present and respectful and everyone deals with mm-hmm. loss differently and you know veterinary medicine yeah. is interesting because you're you know you're someone's bereavement counselor you're someone's friend you're someone's accountant because you have to discuss how they're going to spend they've got x amount of dollars yeah. for this amount of treatment and you have so many hats that you have to wear and being the bereavement person like some people are either good at it and some people are not and it's really interesting to learn how to mm-hmm. compartmentalize and then deal with it after it's not really a skill you, you can teach it's something people either seem mm-hmm. to instinctively know and or, sometimes you don't learn. Don't. Sometimes you know. people are like, I can't yeah. do this. And this is the part that they just check yeah. out at. And other people just take over. Mm. And I think also like when you are longer in the industry and you see a lot of different cases, you learn how to read people a little bit better and how to, some people mm-hmm. want the time and some people. And then there's cultural differences. Some people are wailing over the bodies and other people don't want to be present at yeah. all. And everyone has an opinion. I've learned to be like, no opinion is the correct opinion. However you want to deal with your grief, however you want to deal with it, whether or not you want to be present for the euthanasia or not. I know that a lot of vets and nurses I work with, sometimes they get a little bit judgy when it's like, oh, this owner didn't even want to stay for the euthanasia. And part of me used to be like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like that dog was there for you for its, for its whole life. Why can't you be there for it in its last moment for the dog's sake? But then it's also not all people can see that. They can't watch their yeah. pet die. And that's why when – when they are alone and their owner hasn't come along, we give those dogs, there is someone hugging and crying and kissing that dog and being like, you're a good dog as the injection's going mm. in. And we do our best to give them a good send-off just for the sake yeah. of the animal. Mm. And that's just part of the job, right? You talk about, you mentioned people who are, uh, you know, uh, maybe a little bit softer yeah. in North America than, than um, overall that's in North Australian thing, culture. That's not a bad I like that a lot. No, no. <laughs> No, I mean, you know, every, mm-hmm. everything has its pros and cons. But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, my, my mother has had multitudes mm-hmm. of animals her whole life. And I don't, I could be misspeaking here, but to the best of my knowledge, I don't think she's mm-hmm. been ever been present for the death of any of her animals because she just yeah. can't. Yeah. Just and it's not that she doesn't love the animal. It's just, it's just never going to happen. Yeah, and I understand that. She loves them uh, more I than my brother and I. There's a lot of people that like their pet. <laughs> Some now, people just, oh, oh uh, sorry, ahead. I was going to say, and some people just can't mm-hmm. deal with it. Like I know mm-hmm. someone we know, I won't say a name, but they were basically <laughs> cast. It's not me. <laughs> it's my 
friend <laughs> Andrew. Um, no, it's uh, no, it is someone we know. Um, they they were basically tasked mm-hmm. with putting down their dog, and they went to the vet and they were like, mm-hmm. "It's one hundred and fifty dollars," and they said, "I don't have that money." Went back to their parents and said, "It's one hundred fifty bucks," and they're like, "We mm-hmm. don't want to deal with this." Sorry, and they because they were oh, the dog was dying, and so basically was left to yeah terrible but he yeah. just drove it out Did to the woods it? and just no oh, he just left it so in the cold sad. that's actually and sort then, of considered and, and animal away. cruelty it is but the thing is i feel yeah. bad for the the guy because yeah. he was young at the time and he like parents mm. kind of threw him under the bus a little bit because he was like what do i do and it's a hard i you know look, i can really to be honest it is. i think there's two sides to me like when it comes like i have so much empathy for someone who's in such a predicament when there is that is such an emotional thing to have to deal with and just because perhaps i would say he didn't do the right thing that's not to say i'm not without empathy towards his plight no and i know yeah okay yep. that wasn't the right thing to do for the dog's sake some people just don't know and look there wasn't that long ago that people no, just drowned puppies know. and kittens you know because they couldn't afford to spay their yeah. animals like yeah. i knew that that was a yeah. thing it's yeah, such it's like an, an old farm thing i mean yeah. obviously considered animal cruelty yeah. now but I mean, I'm probably yeah. back then, but it's just you turn a blind eye to that. And there is an element of like over the course of the last, I would say, even like 30 years, animal housing and husbandry has changed so much that pets are truly part of the family. They're not just the dog that gets stuck out in the backyard mm-hmm. and they're just part of the house. They're, that's why cremation is becoming more common and even mm-hmm. pet bereavement counselling is more of a thing. I don't think you could have found pet bereavement counseling or, or whatever you know 15 years ago oh so no, no way no you'd be you'd be a quack, a quack. you'd be a whack <laughs> yeah. dog you said <laughs> for ducks quack, quack, quack. <laughs> dead duck oh, yeah. <laughs> they've got a special D- specialty counselor <laughs> yeah sorry man i cut you off there but what were you gonna say oh no no it's it's all good um no i'm just, i'm 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 curious. I'm personally focusing no, on a little bit on the differences fine. between the two countries, just because it's interesting. Do you do you feel like you've noticed that there's any sort of difference country to country with people, one way or the other, either holding on mm-hmm. too long, trying to treat when maybe euthanasia might be a more humane choice, or going the other way and jumping to mm-hmm. end of life it's prematurely? That's a very interesting question, Amanda. Yeah. That's always been fascinating to me just because of yeah. the, the price Absolutely. tag associated with it that we don't experience Absolutely. in human healthcare. And I, in, well, in Canada, Canada anyway. uh, I, I'm a, my understanding is that humane uh, or electing euthanasia, or what do they call it here? For people. Is that that's people? legal here, right? I don't know what the proper it term is. It is now, yes. Is it you, made, medical oh, assistance in dying. Why don't they use the term euthanasia? Is, is, uh, some, I, I I think that the concern, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know, obviously I wasn't yes. involved in the decision making, but I think that the concern is that the term euthanasia is associated quite closely contextually see, yes. with animals and the implication that it may or may right. not be voluntary. Whereas medical assistance in dying in Canada, you absolutely must mm-hmm. be of sound mind and making the decision in real time for yourself. Very specific, yeah. So, yeah, so you you mm-hmm. may have assistance in doing it if you can't do it yourself mm-hmm. or don't want to, but it has to be right. you Whereas making that decision. Make that decision. Whereas euthanasia can mm-hmm. be involuntary, as it is with animals, because they're That's not right. saying, hey, please kill me. So I think they really wanted to be careful about making that distinction just from a, no, a that makes context. context sense, um, in actual fact. Um, 
Plus, the, plus it sounds like you're saying Asia. youth yeah. in yeah. Asia. Like it's I've like had Boy Scouts in China. That, that's actually happened. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no, when there was an instance where my friend uh, in high school, we had to all pick a pro like they had to all pick a project. And the person in, in yeah. like their mate in high school was like, I'm going to pick the one about youth in Asia. And it was actually about euthanasia, but he thought it was about the kids in Asia. Oh, and that he, the entire time, that's, that's what funny. he thought the project was going to be about. Just anyway. That's hilarious. To answer your question, Amanda, um, I don't think there's a specific difference in countries that I personally have noticed. In my experience, I find it can go one way or the other. In my experience in Australia, I've only ever really worked in specialty veterinary medicine. So I don't want to say people hang on too long in terms of, the thing is they're going to the extremes by going to, and not in a bad way, but they are exhausting mm-hmm. every possible option of saving that pet before they choose euthanasia. Whereas I've right. mainly worked in GP. I have done some specialty stuff in um, Canada, but mainly it's been general practice. And general practice is a totally different ball game. You will have people who uh, you'll discover, like let's say, a mass of some kind. You know it's cancerous. The animal is clinically well, but they've gone, you know what, you you, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to do it now while the dog is clinically well. I don't want to see them at death's door. And other people are like, I'm going to do palliative care until the dog isn't well and then I'm going to make that decision. So I think it varies more in GP, whereas I find in specialty it's either very traumatic and it's like, look, this is really bad, we're doing it right now, or I've exhausted every surgical option and every other medical option and now we're choosing it. So it's not – It's I haven't seemed to experience it any other way in Australia, whereas in, in, in here I would say in Canada it's definitely a lot more uh, such a personal decision. Like today I had a euthanasia. Today was mm-hmm. my – my last consult was a lady who had a cocker spaniel. It had a big mast cell tumour on its neck. Now with mast cell tumours in animals we have to do a three-centimetre resection around to try and make sure we take all of it but there's not enough skin there to do a primary closure it was probably 15 centimeters across and like basically half the neck boy and so we had done a biopsy results came back as mast cell the dog probably would have been able to have palliative care for a little while longer but the lady had decided look i want her to go when i'm seeing her like this rather than seeing her quality of life drop and then i make the decision there's nothing wrong with that and there's nothing wrong with waiting as well what we do for Mm -hmm. clients is often we give them a quality of life scale that comes from one of the universities and it's got maybe like 30 questions on there and it's got like medium fair poor or high or something like that and there's a scale and it's each Mm -hmm. question you have to grade it and gives you a certain point and then that gives you an idea for people who can't make that decision like what should i do when is the right time and Mm -hmm. often it's questions like now is the animal eating um and then it'll be like yes no or whatever and then or it'll be like is the dog playing or is the i can't remember all the questions but there's about 30 questions that are like that it gives you a, a, a particular grade and that helps make people it helps people make a decision in veterinary medicine we never encourage euthanasia we just give it as it's a treatment as i say it's just an option mm-hmm. when yeah. the animal comes in and it's sick and that could be anything trauma or whatever we can say okay this there's this option we treat it these we or we do further diagnostics or we do nothing and we we euthanize and there's nothing wrong with electing that it's completely personal mm-hmm. it's just sad sometimes when the animal isn't sick 
and that's what they're choosing. Or if it's a quick fix and maybe they can't afford it, often people with bleeding yep. hearts in the clinic end up adopting it or we ask them to relinquish the ownership of that animal. And some people choose not to. Like one sad one that I had was an old gentleman who's probably in his 80s. He came in to euthanize his like 10-year-old Bichon that he had, like little white fluffy. And it was one of the saddest ones. I came in and I said, how you doing, mate? And he goes, well, he goes, my wife died. Kids are putting me in a home. Oh, sorry, my wife died. My dog's about to die and my kids are putting in a home so I can go die. I was like, oh, my God, this is awful. Mm. And the thing is there was nothing really wrong with that dog. It was just older. He didn't want it to go to a new home. He just was like, I can't take it with me in the retirement home or whatever. And it's his dog. It's his choice. And we just did what we had to do. But it was such a sad – I just felt so bad for him and so bad for the dog. And they're the extremes. There you go. Like there's people that will hang on – there's some dogs that hang on for too long. Some people choose mm-hmm. till like mm-hmm. yesterday. So I've had a big death week this week at work, which is more than usual. And so it's quite funny that we're doing the podcast now. But yeah, you we planned knew. it. We, you we killed actually, all those dogs. Thanks. Yeah, we, no, no, we just. <laughs> oh, I we see, have some I friends. See. Well, this one yesterday so, yeah, uh, was a dash hound that came in, and it had been in and out of uh, our hospital during the week, and I was sort of medically managing it but it wasn't like she wasn't doing a lot of diagnostic because she was limited with money so when you do limited diagnostics you don't know fully what's wrong with them so you're kind of throwing whatever at the wall and hoping shit sticks like medicine wise Mm -hmm. and whatnot it's not my favorite form of medicine by any means but the dog i believe i think we suspected it had a lung mass but she didn't want to do an x-ray at the time so late last night we're just about to close it's 5 30 and she calls and she's like hey I think he's dying. I need to come down right away. Of course, they're a good client of ours, so we're going to stick around. So we stick around. Comes in the door and the assistant runs to the back and she's like, they're in room one. And I'm like, why didn't you just bring it back? And I walk into the room and like the dog's bleeding out of its nose. It's clearly dead, but they don't know. They're just holding the dog. The owners are holding the dog. We were prepared for a full emergency. I'm thinking it's respiratory distress. We'll tube it. We'll do everything. Right. And um, anyway, it must have had some form of just it just basically drowned right it just blood coming out of its nose it was definitely deceased and they're just in shock because they're like i don't know he was just gasping for air a few seconds ago which i think was agonal breathing and i'm and right so the way she's describing it to me it sounds like agonal gasping and and i said i said i'm so sorry but um just so you know i don't want you to be traumatized the dog was probably already passed by that point that's just the body's natural gases releasing and so forth you try and like make them better and you try and calm them down from that adrenaline rush of like holy shit what's just happened and then you just yeah. talk to them about aftercare i ended up spending half an hour talking to them about aftercare and just uh, not not necessarily like they'd made their choice they wanted to cremate the dog but just how to process the loss and because i'd mm-hmm. i had to euthanize my own dog uh you know six months ago having that so close to home helped me be able to empathize with them properly and talk them through what to expect and how they're going to feel after this loss especially because it was a shock to them mm-hmm. and yeah it was they and i personally feel like if i look at that they did leave it too long they didn't it's like it's almost like with veterinary medicine when you get an old sick dog either you do everything or you do palliative care and 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 then elect euthanasia yeah so and a lot of people they don't know how to make a decision and because our job is not to tell them what to do 
our job is to give them all the options and then they make the decision and guide them through their choices. And that's a quite a difficult task in veterinary medicine because people want you to tell them what to do, but if something was to go wrong, they would be very quick to blame you. And, you know, suicide is very high in veterinary medicine because of those reasons. People are just blaming you for things that are truly not necessarily your fault. Your dog's sick. What? I'm, li- I'm, no, I'm not mm-hmm. God. I'm sorry. I'm going to be limited in what I can do. And it's yeah. almost like you have to not convince someone that euthanasia is the way to go. It's just to say this is an option and you guide them through that option of what to expect. And I think people feel guilty. That's what it is. And the, the, you mm-hmm. shouldn't feel guilty. That's why I say it is a treatment and it is – and I always tell people it's an honour to be able to do that. And as in it's an honour for you to be able to do that for your pet because they've been with you their entire life, been there for you, doing all the, you know, comforting you and giving you joy and whatever. And now mm-hmm. you're giving that back to them by giving them a peaceful end. And so many euthanasias I've seen, I'm like, I wish I could go like this. And and I've seen, yeah. like, you know, my uncle died of lung cancer and that's a terrible way to die. You know, and I was, mm-hmm. and he was like, I just kind of wish you could have killed me like kill all the dogs. And yeah. it's, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is int- interesting. I wonder, uh, what would you say if, and, and I don't need like a, an actual factual answer, but just spitballing. How many times, how, how much would you say money affects whether people euthanize or not? Um, yeah. Wait, how do, how do you mean in the sense of, so, like, let's say, let's say, so mm. my dog's sick. I bring my dog in, and you go, the dog, you know, probably going to cost you five to eight hundred dollars to get this dog back to health, or whatever. Mm. And then do people elect, you know, euthanasia yeah. over that? Yes, that would happen a lot more than I. Is that right? Eh? To be honest, and it is quite sad, but I, I don't say this to people directly to their face, but I do believe this that. Um, Pets are a mm. luxury. They're not a right. They're a responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. And people often approach it as a right. Like, I need to own this dog. It's like, mate, it's like yeah. owning a boat. Not everyone needs to own a boat or a mm-hmm. vehicle. You are now responsible by owning it by keeping the yeah. upkeep. And if you can't afford it, unfortunately, you know, either you relinquish the pet and let somebody else be able to afford right. the life it needs or you can choose euthanasia, which is often very sad when you know that it's an easy mm-hmm. fix, or something that it commonly happens, and I've seen it a lot, particularly in the Okanagan in low socioeconomic areas, will be a lot of puppies come in that aren't vaccinated. They end up, they, they're owned by just someone gives them a dog or whatever from the bush, and they haven't been vaccinated. They end up with parvovirus, which is a terrible disease for puppies. Parvovirus can live in the ground for up to three years. So if you're not vaccinating your animals, they can pick yeah. it up very easy, especially if they're immune compromised. And essentially, parvovirus just makes you uh, bleed and vomit until, like, bleed, mm. vomit, and poop, vomit, and, uh, sorry, poop, uh, blood until it's you like die. It's cholera. It's a melting. E- exactly, but 10 times worse. And they're very, it'll cost you a week in hospital for that puppy to get back to health if you've even bought it in time. Yeah. Often they just die. And so, and they're dying of dehydration mm-hmm. and whatnot. And so, those people cannot afford a week's work no. in hospital because that's around the clock care. That animal is constantly, every time I've had a parvo puppy, every vet nurse hates having a parvo puppy because you need to fully mm-hmm. gown up. You're there in isolation. It takes you an hour. Then you turn around and the dog has shit and pissed everywhere and it's flicking crap all over oh your boy. face. 
and then you have to de- degown yourself and then go and deal with all the other patients that you have. They are mm-hmm. time-consuming patients. So it's very costly for them. It's $5,000 oh, yeah. for a week probably. And they've not paid for this puppy. They can't even afford a $12 yeah. vaccine, you know. And so then they choose either. They choose to euthanize. But often what happens if we know that the puppy would probably make it because they brought it in on time but they can't afford the treatment, we request that they relinquish it. Often we'll get a shelter involved. They sort of pay out right. the bill and so forth. But a lot of the times the hospitals eat right. that cost wow. because – we, we want to save the pet. We had a small tech glitch there, so we're just going to refresh ourselves. Valina, you're telling us about Parva. Parvovirus is a very sad uh, virus that lives in the ground for uh, three years, so it's very susceptible for immune-compromised animals to pick it up. And it'll be a puppy that'll come in, and if it's come in early enough, you know, it might be a $5,000 stay for a week for that animal to get better. And you know what, I don't have $5,000 just sitting around willy-nilly, so I understand when someone says I can't afford that, but it is a responsibility for them and if they choose to relinquish that pet, often the animal gets better and uh, the hospital eats up that cost and that animal gets adopted out, but they do need to relinquish it. And they are, that's often a, a, a really sad case where people have to – veterinary medicine is one of those things where – Often you are making a lot of choices based on whether you can afford it or not. And just because you can save something, just because you can't afford it, often you don't. And it's very difficult as the veterinary person to have to guide someone through those decisions. And you have to do it kind of judgment-free. And it's difficult often for a lot of people who have those bleeding hearts because they want to save the pet. And you can't always save everything just because it can physically make it through. You know, this, you're taking away a home from another animal that might be adopted. So it's a very now. What about the what about the flip difficult. side of that too, where mm. um, where you're like, hey, it's this is an easy case. You just need the treatments. Mm-hmm. What if it's the other yeah. way around though, where you're like, you shouldn't treat this dog because I know you can't say that, but I'm sure you see yes. people. You can't say it, but there's a way all the you time, can, right? Yeah, you can say it in a way where you're not actually saying it. You have to tiptoe around yeah. that conversation. Not everyone's so delicate. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, some people were like, "I will do everything. I will mm-hmm. pay whatever money's not an object." And you're like, "Actually, your dog has three broken legs, and you know, one of them's falling yeah. off, and like whatever." No, That's I know what you mean. I example. I had my my vet told me that too when i had a, a dog that was critically injured and it was like a mm. crush injury right so it was like a, a coyote mm. got him but it was mm-hmm. didn't look bad from the outside there was a couple but and then on she the was inside. like mm-hmm. it's five thousand dollars to show up so she was really good at sort of she she basically i mean i had a good relationship with her that's the other thing too is if you do have mm. a good relationship that's the thing right uh, and and it's interesting having a good relationship with your veterinarian and the rapport you build with them is often going to be the the factor of how they're going to navigate through those difficult conversations. Yeah. If I've built a really good rapport with somebody, I can usually know to be a little bit more mm. frank if I need to be with those kinds yes. of cases. But some people are very sensitive, and so you have to be able to gauge people. And that's the interesting thing about veterinary medicine is people often think. Hey, I love animals. I'm going to be, I want to be a veterinarian. I want to save everything. And you don't realize that 90% of your job is actually handling. Oh, the oh yeah. Of course. 
it's kind of like in mm-hmm. pediatrics, right? You're not really dealing with no. the child. You're dealing with yeah, the parent. 100%. And that's what Do you it is. get much continuity of care in veterinary medicine? Because it is fee-for-service coming out of people's pockets. They have the option to jump around. There are a lot of vet mm-hmm. clinics around. Absolutely. Do, do, you, do you find that you clients tend to like come back and, and do regular care with the same provider for their animals? Or do they just kind of pop in, pop out, see them once, see them a couple of times, don't see them for 10 years? It's different. It's very much case by case. And again, like I said before, in the past, I've always been in specialty medicine. So it's a little bit different because that's a referring hospital. Whereas in GP land, I feel like we, you'll have the people that shop around. They don't really care which vet they're seeing. They just know they got to get their shot or they got to get a dental and they just want to get the best price and they just jump around from clinic to clinic and they don't really care. And others might be the other end where they're like, I will only see Dr. Such and Such. And you're like, okay, but Dr. Such and Such is on mat leave. So you're going to have to see whichever doctor we have in. And you're still getting, it's all of us at the back that are dealing with those patients. Dr. Such and Such is just mm-hmm. prescribing or writing their notes. So some people are very extreme about the continuity. They only want to see so-and-so on this day and they're very particular. And And then other people kind of don't care. And often... The entire team at the clinic builds the rapport with the client, then they're happy to just come back mm-hmm. to the clinic. And they don't, it, so it's really depending, you're building a relationship as an individual veterinary person and as a team at a clinic. And then you're also building a relationship with perhaps a veterinary, like a referring hospital, if it's a critical case, because they're coming to see you. And then you're kind of doing like a joint care thing with the referring hospital. Let's say it's got cancer, they're going to go to oncology. They go and do all the oncology stuff at the specialty hospital, but then we're doing all the aftercare. Exactly. So it's very, it very much depends on the person's personal mm-hmm. circumstance, and then that's how they make their decision. So when you were when you were training for veterinary medicine um, to be a uh, nurse, uh, yeah, it's a nurse. Yes. What sort of education, if any, did they give you? Mm-hmm. I mean, besides being like, hey, you're gonna have to kill the little pink mice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did, mm-hmm. did what sort of education did they give you around euthanasia around that human interaction element you know around helping um have those sort of delicate conversations to guide without instructing things like that mm-hmm. that's interesting it's i've been in this industry now well i've been in the animal industry i would say nearly 15 years and i've been doing veterinary stuff sort of for 13 and when I went through school, I guess uh, legally vet nurses are not allowed to actually euthanize. That's the legality. It is the veterinarian, mm-hmm. the doctor that is administering the drug. However, under the discretion of the doctor, if the doctor requests you to do it, then you are legally That's allowed to service, do yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. So that often happens to me because the doctor is busy doing other things and the doctor doesn't have the time often to spend the time to go through the emotional side of stuff and that's often when nursing comes in and for us my instructors in school were always like uh, they gave us not a lot but they gave us tips on how to handle client and how to not be judgmental how to respect people's decisions that how to speak with them there is a manner of speaking and and tone is very Mm -hmm. important as you know I'm a very chatty person talk a lot task of they call me and I am quick chatty I'm loud and 
boisterous, but as soon as there's, I know there's a euthanasia happening, the voice goes down. That's what was recommended to be by my instructor. So your voice goes down, you speak slower, you speak clearly, you're concise. There is a manner of speaking so that you can gauge people's emotions and their expectations. And so you do discuss, you have to be able to help meet people's expectations because if they have never seen an animal mm-hmm. die, you need to explain the bodily function. So my go-to, and basically I do everything that I was trained in now. So what a, a typical euthanasia would be animal comes in, the after the the choices for cremation, home burial, or whatever they want to do, is 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 a conversation that they have once the animal is brought into the consult room. The assistant will, who is the receptionist at the front, they will go through those choices, take payment first, then the doc because no one wants to deal with the money thing after when they're emotional and crying. So we were told never ever take payment after. That was a big thing that was drilled into me, and it's not because we're greedy and we want the money. It's because we want to respect the people's mm-hmm. emotions. No one wants to be crying and blubbering over a pin pad machine trying to punch in their credit card. And so we were told to take payment first. Then what happens is either the, if it needs to be a consult first, the doctor will come in and consult, yes, okay, we're going to choose euthanasia. If we know that they've already chosen it, they're like, oh, okay, we think it's time, then it's my job once the payment's been done to go in and be like, hi, my name is Valina. I'm going to be the technician. I'm going to take away, um, you know, Fluffy, and we're going. I'm going to place a catheter in it's a, into the vein, and um, we're going to, you know, put an extension set or whatever. And I'm going to bring Fluffy back, and you can spend as much time as you like with Fluffy before you're ready to to proceed. Now, the and then I usually some doctors will just explain the whole thing when they go in. I like to prepare the owners, and that's what I was told to do by my instructors, that as the technician and you're the first sort of point of person that they see before they see the doctor, is that you're getting them ready to understand what's going to happen. So I'll often say, well, pentobarbital is actually an overdose of an anesthetic, very painless, it goes very quickly, it stops their heart, stops them breathing, very quick, it's very humane. And I explain to them often their bowels will release and they will st- uh, they they might release their bladder. And I also have to tell them that their dog's eyes mm-hmm. don't close because people don't realize that your muscle eye muscles relax once you're dead and that your just eyes are open. It, I think it's bizarre that people don't realize that because they that obviously happens in people. People don't realize it in people either. Yeah. Really? Mm, I just thought from the movies. I just always you know, thought they turned into two X's. <laughs> so so uh you know you explain to them okay this is what's going to happen this is what might happen sometimes agonal gasping mm-hmm. happens and i don't always explain that that might happen unless i know it's like a respiratory case if the dog's been in like congestive heart failure or has some kind of pulmonary edema that's probably going to happen and people are shocked by that gasp like the animal's dead you know it's dead but it, it's like I've even seen it sometimes. They've been dead for probably a good 30 seconds and then the whole animal pops its whole body up and goes, <gasps> and the owner just goes, what, it's not dead, blah, blah, blah. And so if I know that that's a possibility in those cases, I will even explain to them that that mm-hmm. might happen. And so what I say, can choose to have a sedation. Maybe the animal's a little bit of a anxious animal in clinic anyway and you want them to kind of go a little bit more peacefully. 
Um, so we'll offer different forms of sedation. How sedated do you want them to be? Do you want them to look like they're sleeping and then we inject? Or do you want them to be uh, just a little bit, you know, dozy without, like, but still alert, bright alert, responsive, you know? And so I will give them that option and then I will take the dog, I give them the whole spiel. Then I walk away with the animal, I put the IV and I bring it back and I say, you take your time and just pop your head out of the consult room and let us know when you're ready. Sometimes it'll be five minutes. Sometimes it'll be an hour and they're just sitting there with the dog trying to prepare themselves mm-hmm. for it. Once that happens, then usually myself and the doctor will go in. The doctor, I try and prepare so that the doctor can just go in, say, hello, I'm the doctor. I'm, are you ready? And they say, yes, because we have to ask them. I was told in school that you have to ask them, are you ready? Okay, I'm going to proceed mm-hmm. now. In however many words you might want to say it. And then... They will go to inject, the doctor will leave. I'll often be like, uh, I might stay behind for a second and just maybe give them some options. I'll be like, you know, I know this is really difficult. Um, you know, there's a way you want to remember your pet. I'll give them like a suggestion, something like if you have a favourite toy or a favourite collar, you can put it around the dog's dish and plant a little succulent in the dish and then have it in your, you know, a special area or something. And often that relaxes the person afterwards because they're like, oh, that's actually really nice, mm-hmm. thank you. And I'm like, okay, you take your time. And then I step out and I leave and I tell them, like, you leave the pet here. As soon as you step out, I'll go in to do the aftercare part. And they, sometimes they stay in there for an additional half an hour, which is with right. a dead body. And sometimes they just leave straight away and then I collect it and we do whatever we have to do at the back after. And so my training, I had a really good instructor. So I feel like they prepared us for this is how you speak. You need to meet the mm-hmm. expectations. How would you feel? Often you you have to put yourself in that person's shoes in order to process what needs to be done and what to expect. And that's sort of how I handled it. But I feel like in my all my years of working in Australia, I was probably a little bit more insensitive, not in the way of I didn't take the time right. because now I'm in GP and I do. I sit down, I chat to them and all that. But when you work in ICU and emergency, it's like, it's now or never. This animal is going to die very quickly. Do you want it done right now? And you you mm-hmm. you do it and then you just get on with the rest of the alive patients because you've got 30, 40 patients to deal with and you might be the only yeah. nurse in hospital. And then you deal with the body afterwards. So it's not to say that specialty surgery, uh, surgery specialty care is not as kind. It's just a little bit mm-hmm. more pragmatic. Whereas GP, you get a little bit more of a mm-hmm. service. Although, I mean, as you said, you know, if, if you're working in a specialty area, especially in veterinary medicine where people have been paying for the care of their pets all the way along, I, I feel like there's probably inherently more preparation for those people coming in because they've already reached an extreme circumstance. Whereas that might Absolutely. not be the case in general practice. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. And it just depends. Is it an ICU case? that came in from for trauma and you have to make a, a decision there and then or is this an ongoing medical case of cancer and then they're making a call and you've built a rapport with them. Because in ICU and emergency, you're not building rapport mm-hmm. with clients. You might never see that person again. You treat their animal and then yeah. they're in, they're out. Or, but with like internal medicine, it's a lot mm-hmm. more lengthy. There's a lot more attachment. You've built a rapport with that, that client and that pet and it can be a lot more harder. That's for certain. But it, it's those are the differences for me, not so much from country to country, but more from type of mm-hmm. veterinary medicine. Yeah, I can see that. 
and and that's been an interesting journey what about self-care did they teach you much about about looking after yourself in the context of dealing with that barrage of emotions good bad or indifferent dealing with cases that you may not agree with the the owner's choices on things like that absolutely not i must admit absolutely not and now that i'm this far into the industry i can understand why mental health in our industry is so terrible because they do not prepare you for that it's it's almost like you just kind of learn how to do it on the job or you just see how other people handle it and you just you just be and it's quite horrific not you know you find solace in each other you sort of go okay this my co-workers dealt with this I've like everyone's kind of if you're not crying if, if you're not laughing you're crying that's kind of a saying that we have because we try and make jokes about a lot of stuff because that's how mm-hmm. we deal with it and I do find a lot of people in vet med you know it's all niceties to the clients but in actual fact we're always cussing we're always making you know completely inappropriate jokes and about about animals in freezers and whatnot that's just our coping mm-hmm. mechanism you know I mean, I recently I had a, a co-worker try and scare me. They they were hiding in the freezer and I went to put an animal in the freezer and they popped out of the freezer and scared the <laughs> shit out of me. It's just, it's just our way of handling things. But they don't teach you that. They don't teach you at all how to handle your emotions, how to handle when you've built a rapport with the client. And often you just learn it from mm-hmm. each other. But there was certainly no conversation whatsoever in school and not anyone that I know that's gone through veterinary school I don't know about veterinarian specifically I actually haven't had this conversation and I would love to have this conversation on my podcast with veterinarian specifically if they do that in vet school but as far as nursing is concerned they never have this conversation with us on how to deal with our own mental health when it comes to the array of emotions that we go through and how much we tie ourselves to those pets and those people and we're an extension mm-hmm. of their family. And nursing is that care. That's, I don't know about the vet, but for us, that's, we play such mm-hmm. a large role when it comes to those conversations. And they certainly do not prepare you at all for it. And we just, yeah, you just learn as you go. And for me, like, I'll have days where I'm like, this is the job. i got to do the job. And I might have been, I, I try and compose myself in the, in the, the consult room while the procedure is happening but then on my way home I'm bawling my eyes out because I just need to let it out because you've just Mm -hmm. kept it all together for that whole day and that's that's hard and sometimes it just comes out of nowhere like why am I crying oh yeah it's about that dog that I killed three weeks ago and obviously we don't use the term killed I'm just being a bit macabre but that's that's how it is now you know because because you are on the inside um you're you're in the know do you feel like that made it easier or more difficult when it came time for one of your own animals to to see the end of their life? Um, how, how I mean, like, mean? I think I think for some people in in any healthcare situation, I, I feel like veterinary medicine is no different. Not. Mm not understanding exactly what's going on, whether it be policies and procedures in-house for the clinic or physically, medically with uh, the pet or whatever, is really unsettling. It's really disconcerting. It adds a whole extra layer to the stress and distress of being worried about a sick and or dying animal anyway. Mm. So 
being on the inside of that, knowing exactly what's going to happen, exactly how it's going to go, exactly mm-hmm. how it works, what the process is, mm-hmm. what's happening mm-hmm. physically. Does that make it better? Does it make it worse? Does it fuck with your head? <laughs> I don't. You know what? It's almost like having too much knowledge can be a curse. That's certainly how I saw it for myself personally. I had to put my own dog down back in July and I knew what was coming and it's it made it better in the sense like I knew my expectation. I had didn't have to deal with the shock of what to mm-hmm. expect. But it was almost like because I have a lot of experience in specialty, I kept questioning myself, am I doing the right thing? Could I do more? What else could I do? And I know that with other veterinary people that I speak to in the industry when it comes to their own, they experience the same thing. They almost like, oh, shit, I know too much and I could be doing more. Am I doing enough? And you're not even thinking about money at that time. You're just like, am I doing the right thing for the dog? And am I, or am I just being selfish? You know, do I want them around? And I had to talk myself in and out of it many times like when am I ready when am I ready and you know what I almost feel like she made that my dog made that decision for me because I saw this once I saw the signs those clinical signs of oh you're you're ready I need to speed up and get myself ready then it's I was cool Mm -hmm. to be kind and it did make it easier for me and then I had to keep reminding myself you know what I had 13 good years and I kept telling myself that and that what if I – let's say that I went to all ends of the earth and I could have saved her. She had a liver mass, which at the time when I found out, I, I thought it, it – we, we knew it was resectable but then, and she was clinically well, but she decompensated so quickly she ended up having free fluid in the abdomen and it bled out. And so that was my decision maker. I was like, oh, you made that decision. Your body mm-hmm. decided that, hey, I'm not going to be a surgical candidate. and. You know, it might have been a different outcome had I, you know, made the cut earlier. But at the end of the day, there was a sense of relief knowing what I knew. But it was also almost made it a little bit harder because you're not – it's almost like you have to prepare yourself. Totally. And so even though I knew I was coming for the dog and I knew how to handle the ins and outs of the dog and the procedure and everything that I had to expect for the dog. Because I'm so – you're so clinically minded that you're going to be – you're doing everything for the dog. You forget to take mm-hmm. care of yourself. And you forget to do the process for yourself. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit, I'm the client. Now I have to like console myself and talk myself in. And it's almost like you're the client and you're telling yourself what to do. And that was certainly challenging. And they never prepare for mm-hmm. any of that in school. And it's just talking to other people in the industry that helps you find solace knowing that you're doing the right thing. Right. I have a question for... Um I know something that we talked about or you, you sort of touched on earlier about that maybe we'll get to is about after euthanasia, what happens and with it with. Oh, yeah. That's so a good question. what I'm wondering is that I know that, like you say, some people take their dogs and I've done that before mm-hmm. and some people rely mm-hmm. or do cremation. And I know you can do like, like gr- you mass, do mass burial, burial or mass cremation, yeah. right? Or you just get like a mm-hmm. thing of. There's so many options your, actually. Yeah. Has anyone ever said, I want to taxidermy my dog? Or cat? Oh, really? Yes, eh? yes. I've had people who have said, "I'm going to are you," and I'm like, "That's your business. Yeah. You take it home. You take it to the taxidermist. We don't have a taxidermist on hand that we utilize or anything like that." I've seen. I'm part of a few different veterinary groups, and people will post like some weird stuff oh, yeah. on there. And 
someone turned their rottweiler into like you know like the rug on the floor like that a bear you might skin see rug a bear be, like a bearskin rug they turned their rottweiler like that but someone had, like the taxidermist had kind of oh, fucked yeah. up the eyes so it just looked really creepy and so then they were trying to sell their dead dog oh, oh yeah on on like a Facebook yeah. marketplace or something for two hundred dollars. Actually, that's <laughs> like one of my favorite really things. To ch- to, if you ever want to look at something funny, bad taxidermy is really good. Yeah. It, I love that's a great coffee book. Where they actually. have like the squirrels have it's, marbles for eyes or something like that. Yeah. Or googly, literally <laughs> googly eyes. Like, googly eyes. Yeah. yeah. I definitely. Yeah. They're the people have requested like they want to make like I used to make jokes saying that I'm going to turn my Bengal cat into a, yeah. a hat, like one of those raccoon yeah. hats. Obviously, I probably right. wouldn't, but people can do whatever they want afterwards. It's There's no legal restrictions. Animal. There's no legal restrictions. You can do whatever. You can cook it up. Mm. I don't know. Whatever. Whatever it is that you want to do with that pet. But I think just most people just don't, like, they don't want to yeah. see it. They don't want to deal with it. But there are lots of options. So you can do, option is like, yes, you take it home, do whatever. And often I have to tell people. If you're choosing to take it home, make sure your hole is deep right. enough. Make sure you don't bury them in the mm-hmm. bag because that's not – you almost have to tell yeah. idiots that it's not decomposable. The bag yeah. is right. plastic. And then you might say you can wrap them up in a blanket, put them in the ground, but make sure it's deep enough because so many people have been like, you let me take the dog home to bury it. And now, you know, animals have dug it up yeah. and eaten it or whatever. It's like that's, yeah, that's your what responsibility. Yeah, that's what happens when you put it six inches of dirt. Yeah, that's right. Just cover yeah. it up with sand. That's an option. Some people, like, for example, I know back home, I don't think it's an option with the euthanasia company we or the cremation company we use, but back home, let's say people might not have much money, but they don't want to deal with it at, like, they live in the city or something, and their animal died at home. They might bring it to us, and it's just a $50 charge for, uh, it, we call it general disposal, oh, is okay. actually what it says mm-hmm. on the tag, but it goes to the cremation company, and they might do, like, a mass burial. They just have a big field where they just bury them hmm. all together or which is probably more common now they'll do mass cremation but that's still more costly because crematoriums yeah. cost a lot so 50 bucks to put someone else to put the dog in the ground is probably not a bad deal then you've got mass cremation then you've got individual cremation and then it becomes costly after that depending on what you want the the ashes returned in do you want it mm. in an urn do you want it in a whatever scatter box and there's multiple options and that I find that part quite tedious and I'm glad that I don't necessarily work in the reception front end of things because often people can't decide and there's too many right. options and like, oh, I don't know. And you're just like, okay, just jump on the website and have a look, make this decision before. But yeah. you can't yeah. be that. And you also don't want to be it, like so the salesperson either to be like, no, be like, no. are you sure Fifi wouldn't want ruby yeah. crusted urn? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, I don't exactly. know. And we don't really make that. That charge has actually got nothing I know. to do with the clinic. People think yeah, you guys that are you guys are make, profiting off of. But yeah, it's a third never, party thing. We have yeah. nothing to do with the cremation company. Our euthanasia fee is not even a third, like a quarter of the price of what everything right. else is. Like the actual euthanasia fee might be yeah. ninety dollars, right. which is fairly affordable mm-hmm. for most people. Let's say you want to euthanize it and you took it home. So ninety dollars is not that big of a deal. But all the cremation, and they see it and they're like, oh, I've had people hang up on the phone to me. They're like. Or they give you the guilt yeah, thing. How dare they'll you. be like, they'll call up and they're like, "How m- I need to euthanize my dog? How much is it?" And you're like, "Well, it's probably about three hundred dollars, yeah. right?" Because you're looking about ninety dollars for the euthanasia, and you're not going to find cheaper than two hundred bucks to get even cremation, sure. like mass cremation. And it, it goes by. Does it go by weight? So if you, it if I brought in weight. a great Absolutely. Dane, yeah, way more costly okay, than a gotcha. chihuahua. 
I could burn your chihuahua <laughs> on the stove if you want. Not again, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, and I've had someone be like, "What? I'm. I guess now you're making me go shoot my yeah. own dog. Thanks a lot." And they hang up on you like, "I don't need yeah. that abuse. That's a terrible thing for me to think about now for the rest yeah. of the day because you don't want to. do That's okay. You don't yeah. have to do cremation." But surely you can scrounge up $90. You've owned the dog the yeah. entire life. You've probably spent more on dog food. Hopefully. Or maybe Hopefully. not. That's why they're good to get. Maybe yeah. that's why the dog's dying. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. That's definitely a difficult part. The uh, That aftercare of going through those choices. Mm. And What uh, about yeah. donation to science? Is that a thing for pets? Yeah, it certainly is. is I don't think we have it on the form. <laughs> It's usually more common in like groups of things. So I wouldn't say breeders per se. I'd say it's more like, for example, I know the Greyhound Society in Australia. There's a great, like all like the ex-race dogs. So often the ex, all the ex-race dogs back home, if they don't get adopted, they're often used as blood donors and all the blood, like they've got great blood and you can drain quite a lot from them and they get distributed (laughs) around. Well, not like you keep them alive as as donors. The blood farms, essentially. And so they get distributed around to all the different vet clinics. And then, but then, like, let's say they need to be euthanized or whatever. Then they often the bodies are used for veterinary schools, or, right. schools and things like that. I remember we had to do a study on one of the surgeons I worked with. They were doing their residency and they did a, uh, a study in vinyl fractures. And so we basically had 20 greyhounds that were dead. I'll never forget this now. We had to cut out their spines and then drill different pins into, like break them a particular way and then drill the, do the repairs and then scan them through in the CT scan and x-ray them just so that we could show this is how you right. repair and so forth. Um, so there is donations to science usually from organisations like that. I wouldn't say so much from shelters per se, but I'm sure that you could get them when they're not owned and it might be like a cat colony mm-hmm. that got, um, you know, they would do a mass cull or something right. like that. But usually there's not an option there for the owner to be like, yes, I want it to be donated. People aren't mm-hmm. thinking about that. And and I'm actually surprised with human medicine, it's usually such a personal decision if you donate your, your mm-hmm. own body, but it's not like you have your family making a decision. Well, they kind of do. Unless they're no, a vegetable. I mean, you can make whatever no? decision you want and then as soon as you're dead, it doesn't have to count. Yeah, whoever oh, your next really? of kin is gets to do whatever they want once you're dead. So ideally, they'll respect myself to be. Ideally, yes. Is that even but if you not, have a will, always the case. Doesn't matter. Really? Even if you have a power really? of attorney and a will and uh, rep nine for medical decisions, did, you can have all the paperwork in the world. You can have a. Do people often contest oh, yeah. it? Yeah. Really? Mm. So it would it be like someone died? Let's say they wanted to be donated. And then the next of kin didn't want them donated, but then another family member want, wanted to their wishes respected. So, con- like so contesting, like going down the line, I don't, I really don't know how common that is. But as far as like, you know, mm-hmm. if I say, okay, please, you know, take my organs when I die, and then mm-hmm. I, you know, uh, drop dead, my next of kin, so Andrew, mm-hmm. you know, says, no, I don't believe in organ donation. Burner. Really. Wow. And so they have to go, irrespective of what my wishes were. They So That's so for people, when people make those sorts of decisions, science, organs, whatever it is, 
it, it's always very much encouraged. And I don't think human medicine is necessarily that great at this as a very broad general rule. But ideally, mm-hmm. you really want to encourage people to have like lengthy, deep discussions with multiple close members of friends and family so that people are aware of their wishes so they can maybe voice so it's not just well, one and, and voice their concerns, go back and forth. And hopefully they will understand and appreciate what the person wants. And then choose to respect mm. it once they're dead. Because once you're dead, you actually get no say. There's no legal recourse if your next of kin says, no, don't do that. Hmm. Same no. thing as, you know, if if if, uh, if I go unconscious and I've said, I don't want to be resuscitated if I die. So I go unconscious, my heart stops. Andrew says, get get on her chest. Resuscitate her. Yeah. They have to listen to him. Yeah. Wow. And then you guys can have a spat about yeah. it when you come back. <laughs> yeah, that'll be awesome. Yeah, we are, we, no, we've already, we've already had this fight. That was the first podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I basically, I really boiled it down to, so like, oh, you stepped in a puddle and you accidentally got electrocuted. Not resuscitate yeah. you when it's really easy. And she's like, no. I'm like, all right. That's very that's specific. Very specific. I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. it, but I, that's what I'm saying. Did you ask all those questions, right? I'm watching a, out yeah. for puddles. There's 10,000 ways to but die. But that's actually... A that is a really good question. Like, you no. never think about that stuff, right? I don't know. Well, I have I, uh, buyers for I, her I, organs, so I'm just going to let it happen. So, yeah. You're going to have to do it so that they're not all fried. Oh, no, no, it doesn't matter. I'm giving them to pet science. So, <laughs> <laughs> so no, well, to answer your question, I don't think, I actually don't think it would be that useful. Like, a lot of people, if they are into that kind of thing, they often want to do an mm. autopsy. Mm-hmm. It's not common that people request autopsy, but if it's sudden and it's weird and it's a weird disease, and maybe it's more popular in teaching hospitals or universities that have the hospital and then that happens, but it, in regular GP, nobody's... Does your doctor do that? Or? I was going to say, yeah, yeah, would it be the regular vet or do you have like doggy do you, coroners? No, you, there's oh, wow. doggy coroners. Like it goes oh, okay. to the lab. Like the lab deals with it. I've been like, watching we too don't, TV where the doctor's like, I'm going to figure this out right now. Yeah, you're. Uh, yeah, this is. Uh, yeah. I'm an investigator. No, I mean, look. To be fair, the doctor probably could. Yeah. That's a lengthy process, a big, yeah. and it's a big mess, and no one actually wants to do that. And so, whenever someone requests an autopsy, even though let's say the veterinarian probably could have done it, we just send it to the lab because there's people mm-hmm. for that. They, that's a service you yeah. pay for, and that's a service I don't want to do. Is there is there so, an autopsy lab in Kelowna? Not oh. in Kelowna. We send everything to IDEX, I believe, that? usually. Which is, I, they not use IDEX labs in human? I thought there was a human. I don't know. IDEX. There might be, but most, lo- most lab work for human medicine gets done in hospital. I mean, there oh, are private okay. labs, but I mean, That's because, what I mean, because I, my experience is mostly acute care, then I don't have anything to do with them mm. for the most part. I see, I see. Well, for us, it goes to the lab. Usually, it's either to the University of Guelph in Ontario that or it goes far. to... It can, if it's like a specific test and specific things. Like, we send all of our tick. There's a study happening for any time you get mm-hmm. a tick off a dog, we send all the ticks over to uh, the University of Guelph and they mm-hmm. deal with that. People ticks go to Vancouver. But most of... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, really? But our, as far as general lab things, whether it would be an autopsy or otherwise, probably goes right. to Vancouver. Still, that's got to be expensive for an autopsy, eh? Because yeah, I mean, people often don't choose it. I think it's the it's in extreme cases. It's not very common where people truly request autopsy, and it is expensive. Like then you're all right. Then you've got to deal with the autopsy, and then you've got to still think about the cremation and the aftercare. Freight it down there too. Yeah. Oh well, it just gets 
sent over by Perlita, I would assume. Frozen. Frozen, yeah. Or there's a or the cremation company deals the with the restaurant those, supply people going back empty, take yeah. dead dogs or something. Yeah. What are yeah. they gonna do? I have I'm a question that doesn't really have to do like what is what about I know you don't really because you're sort of GP and it more be a different sort of practice, but what about farm animals? Mm-hmm. People come in with or ever want you to do they do, do do they do field house calls for euthanizing farm animals? I feel like most of the time, and this is something that I certainly discuss on my podcast with veterinarians, that I have very limited experience in farm animals. But often yeah, farmer that deals with that's all what I of that, right? Large animals it's, are like uh, a you, specialty all to themselves, aren't they? Yes, yes. So you would go, you basically all large animal vets are actually small animal vets oh. first. And then you, well, actually that's a lie. All veterinarians go and they learn the basics of large and small and then they decide once they've graduated whether they're going to small or whether they're going to large and then they do further studies. If they fail, they do it bugs? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Maybe, I guess. But they do have to learn about, like, let's say I I wanted to go be a doggy vet. You still have to go and learn about horses and cows and whatnot. Uh, but it's limited experience. But often, as far as euthanasia is concerned, it's not. It's really just the farmer shooting the, the right. cow, or if the cow dies in the field, they just burn it. Jeez. What, yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's a lot of mass oh, yeah. to remove. You know, so I think people in large animal medicine and equine is another thing entirely. Horse people right. are totally that's just a different. Specialty, right? Horse. That's a specialty in its mm. own little way. So horse and horse people are very different to farm people. Totally. Sometimes it's inter- interchangeable, but your farmer that's going to have a thousand sheep is going to deal with it very differently to the person who owns the horse. So owning the like, let's say you owned one horse and that was your mm-hmm. pet, because there's a difference between a farm animal and a pet. And so a, a pet horse probably would be euthanized mm-hmm. humanely, and then there maybe is a cremation company that goes and deals with that, and that would be costly. Or uh, I I don't actually know the aftercare of that. But I do know that that is a service for people. And it's not always with large animals mm-hmm. shooting them in the head. But when it's a farming animal, a production animal, then I would say that, yeah, it's a little bit more cutthroat and there's less uh, bereavement. Fair. What's the most unusual or unexpected animal you've ever had to euthanize? A beaver. Beaver. <laughs> a beaver. That was definitely... That was actually the first beaver I saw. Did you say, Canada. oh my God, somebody's run over its tail and then you killed it? <laughs> Funnily enough, you have to use the tail vein oh, wow. to euthanize okay. them and it oh, had no. a broken tail. I was so, just trying to make a weird joke. Joke, but no, that's yeah, the I truth. I just thought you yeah, didn't know our animals. No, so. I did. I, well, they have that funny pattern that looks like a tire <laughs> yeah. track, right? <laughs> no, so I would say I haven't, I haven't deviated much from dogs and cats and little critters and whatnot but a beaver was the first one that i someone was i thought someone was playing a joke on me at the clinic they're like belina belina there's a beaver in the clinic and i was like oh awesome this is gonna be my i was like maybe six months Mm -hmm. in the country ran to the isolation room there's this beaver it had it it literally had its tail was broken i don't know maybe you ran it over (laughs) also you knew that so how did you know that it had to be euthanized in the tail vein because all oh, is that wild what it is? animals oh, have okay. a tail. Oh, I thought you, yeah. had, I thought so you Googled usually, it maybe here. No, but they sort of, basically anyone in the clinic could have done it. But because they were like, I feel like my coworkers were trying to play a practical joke on me. Like, haha, you have to kill it now. Uh, and I was, and I, I think they were a bit surprised. I was like, okay, like I took it as a learning mm-hmm. experience. 
but they were like, uh, okay, I guess you're doing it now. And so, yeah, you just hmm. find the vein in the in the tail because you don't want to be dealing with any cephalic veins or anything because they're so close to the face. They right. could hurt yeah, you yeah. a lot. So you just restrain them and then you go for the tail. But birds, you do usually go in the wing vein. Actually, bald eagle. That was one of my first ones too in, in Canada. I always felt like when I when I called back home in Australia, I remember everyone's like, oh, what awesome Canadian animals have you seen? And I was like, all of them. I've yeah. killed them all already. And, <laughs> and I'm a six couple of Americans. In, like, <laughs> the yeah. bald eagle. I killed their president. <laughs> But no, that was actually a cool one. The bald eagle was, and you know, look, if you're catching a raptor of any kind, it yeah, is severely yeah. unwell. And so this particular bald eagle had been caught in a fence. Oh, and I found it wrapped yeah. in a fence, and one of the wings had like just maggots oh, all throughout it. And this person had just, I don't know how they caught it and didn't get talons and beaks and whatever in their face, but they wrapped it up in a big blanket, brought it in a box, and then me and this, and I was working at the Pentington SPCA. Mm at the time and I'm not afraid to say it because I worked with this lovely vet and he had experience with raptors and it was so funny this person off the street who had caught it and was being a good Samaritan like they wanted to be present and I don't know why we let them be present to just inspect the bird and like we unwrapped it and I had these welding gloves on and they're just telling me what to do I don't have that much experience with raptors like a little bit back home but and they're like okay Valina someone's gonna have the bird's head wrapped up in a towel and you're going and the other person's going to hold the body. And even though it was pretty mangled, it was still had a lot of fight in it. And then I had the welding gloves and I'm holding the talons and it's on its back, right? And the, the vet spreads the wing out and it's just full of oh, maggots, geez. disgusting, falling apart. And that good Samaritan was like, will it grow oh, back? Oh. <laughs> will the flesh oh, grow no. back? It's like, this is not an octopus yeah. tentacle. This is very bad. And I just felt so bad for the person. Like internally, I was laughing, but on the yeah. outside, I was like, "Oh, that's, that's so That's like sad. equivalent to like when you cut your finger off, you'd be like, "I'll get another one, right?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. okay. I got nine others. It's fine. But anyway, and so I was told, and I wanted to have a learning experience. So I said to the veterinarian, "Like, how would you proceed?" Like the person left once we told them that was hmm. this is what's going to happen. So the veterinarian, I said, "Oh, you know, how would you go? How would you approach this euthanasia?" My understanding is you usually go in the wing vein but sometimes with birds like they're small the vein is so small and friable you could miss right. and just mm. and it's, it is considered i believe humane to go underneath the sternum and go intracardiac right. with birds if they're very small and so in this instance the vein is actually quite huge mm -hmm. in the wing of a bald eagle so on the one healthy wing he ended up holding the bird's talons and then i ended up injecting it was very cool to see and but then uh, once it was dead i like spread huge. it out completely on the floor I'm not joking when I say this, and yes, I'm not a large woman, but its wingspan was my what? arms across, and the body itself was the size of my dog, which is a 15-kilo yeah. dog, right? Thick, solid, huge animal. And I just took a photo, I remember, of the of the talons in my hand, and it was like I was holding another <laughs> human hand. It was just big. That big. And, you know, you hear of birds taking away, like, baby lambs and things oh, like yeah. that. And then you're like, oh, I yeah. see yeah, it golden now. eagles can take down, like, mountain sheep. Absolutely. We have wedge-tailed eagles oh, yeah. in Australia that take away ba baby wow. sheep and stuff. Nothing like that. So if someone brings in a random eagle or, you know, the odd mm -hmm. beaver, mm -hmm. um, obviously those aren't their pets and, and you know, they're trying to, mm -hmm. to be helped. It's a terminal case. You have to euthanize them. 
then what? I, I'm, I'm presuming that the Good Samaritan doesn't have to foot that bill. No, absolutely not. So any, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, for, fortunately for the person and unfortunately for the clinic, that's a cost we eat. Mm. So wildlife is pretty much, we do free care for wildlife and it's up to the discretion of the, of the hospital how much they input in and what supplies they have right. and what drugs and whatnot But that's usually if someone just shows up because if somebody phones you, you tell them to call like, Fish and wildlife, or one of those things. Do you um, not necessarily, know? and often people are like, "I'm on my way oh, down. Yeah, I yeah. found this." So you don't have that option, and it, it depends on the animal. So, like anything that's a raptor in BC gets dealt with by a company called Sorco, like for disposal. I tell you what it stands for, uh, not for just disposal, but also if you've let's say been brought in, we don't nurse them back to health. We just do their care. And stabilize, and then it goes okay. to them. And they're like a rehabilitation specifically for raptors. And also, my understanding is that in BC specifically, I don't know about all of Canada, but it is illegal to take any raptor okay. feathers. Mm. So you can't right. keep them. Like, let's say a bald eagle came in and then we it had to be put to sleep. The body actually gets disposed of by Sorco, okay. and they do research on it, and they do all their thing. But if, like, let's say I wanted to have a little keepsake... Yeah. Right. Big no-no. What about other Huge animals no-no. like you know, the beaver that you had to deal with or if somebody brought um, in, I don't know, a deer or something? It really depends what they're, whether they're endangered okay. or not. And then there's going to be societies out there that deal with them and then there's rehab centres and there's uh, research and universities and whatnot. So each sort of specific animal, if it's a gopher, no one's <laughs> researching that and it just goes in the bin. <laughs> well, no. So anything that is... I mean, I've had squirrels, ground squirrels come in and they've, like, let's say, been attacked by something and then they're covered in maggots. Now, obviously, someone's caught it. Again, I'm still of the let nature take its course and let another animal have food. But people feel sorry for it. I just totally understand. I do not judge them on that. They bring it in, we euthanize it, and then it just ends up, uh, the cremation company kind of right. does it for free as well. So we those costs of taking care of them and euthanizing them and so does uh any company after they're after that deal with okay. it as well hmm, interesting i do find uh it, it fascinating seeing the difference though between like what we do in australia with research and whatnot and what we do with the bodies compared to like i had to learn all right. that when i came so how so how's it work in australia know. well it's just very similar, like certain animals go to somewhere else, but I just didn't know what the company oh, species is, what I mean. Yeah, so like when the, the first big bird came in, like an owl or something, and someone's like, okay, you got to – I just thought it went into the freezer and then that was the end of it. And they're like, no, you need to contact this company and this research and they're going to take away the body. It's not the cremation company that we regularly use and so forth. So that was a learning experience for myself. I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> As uh, as a person who is not in the veterinary industry, how do you perceive euthanasia and the way veterinarians deal with them? You've obviously had a mm. few animals euthanized, Andrew. So yeah, I actually, I know, I, my first dog was one of those things where it was like I was six or seven, and it just you know mm-hmm. they're like dogs going away. I remember seeing the dog go in the car, didn't come back, didn't really. So it's not mm-hmm. really, you know. I wasn't really part of that. And then my second dog was unfortunately hit by a car and it was terrible. I was only 13 and it was devastating 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. So, so then, you know, then when 
let me think. Then the next dog we had just kind of passed away. Like he had, we had it for two years and had a stroke. And so it was one of those things where I was like, be nice to decide, <laughs> you know, because yeah, they, they were somewhat peaceful deaths for those dogs in instant. But then, mm-hmm. and again, I've had, but you didn't get a choice. I didn't get a choice. And then, and I've never really had, choice. I mean, the, the choices I've had with dogs were like, I could tell that mm-hmm. they were like, you know, like I say, one dog was attacked and it was like, okay, this has, and the other one was old mm-hmm. and had like a, uh, aphasia. And so mm-hmm. and she had had it before. And then this time was really kind of out of it. So I actually, mm-hmm. I don't mind either. And like, and when you said, you know, honors the dog or animal mm-hmm. by, by you deciding mm-hmm. and doing it, that kind of spoke to mm-hmm. me because I think, you know, one of the other things that I never really, I never really thought about it until like I heard who was, it was Joe Rogan was saying about, because he's a hunter, he was like, hunting is the best way for the animal to go in the wild. In actual it's like, fact, it's like yes, a lot of animals are dying disease, of disease or they get eaten or, butthole first. Or they get mm-hmm. eaten. Butthole first, yeah. usually, like by the big predators. Yeah. That's a terrible yeah, way to go. Or, or guts, yeah. or guts mm-hmm. torn out and they're still alive. Yeah. Or, I mean, I mean Amanda and I were out, in the, um, we were out in the woods the other day in the snow and we were just driving our car mm-hmm. through some deep snow and I saw some big elk track and I was like, mm-hmm. but I also saw a bunch of like pools of pink and I was like, what is that? And then it looked like Oh, this whatever this was was probably bitten on the ankle by wolves or something, and it was oh, probably walking man. around. And you could tell it had stopped some spots, and then there'd be like a bigger puddle, and then it would walk away. And so, you know, that elk probably thinking, you know, an arrow through the heart wouldn't be so bad right now. In actual yeah. fact, yes. So, I mean, I'll tell you what: the easiest euthanasias, and they're not easy, but the easiest ones are always going to be mosquitoes. Those tro- the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, those trauma yes, cases, yeah. they come in, suffering. the animal's really yeah. mangled up, it's clearly suffering. It's not a difficult mm-hmm. decision to make. And it's, it, you're often it's more about consoling the like mm-hmm. yeah. owner. But it is there is a sense of relief, you know? That's, that's what I was going to say yeah. too, is that there is something about, I remember with my dog, Kelly, that I had for six, we had our family dog for 16 years. Again, it was sort of like mm-hmm. she kind of, you know, bumped around the house for a while because nobody really knew what to do. She wasn't like in mm-hmm. pain or anything, but going. No, dementia in dogs yeah. is real, and often people don't know that they can. I think people feel mm-hmm. guilty and they don't realize that, yes, you can make a judgment call and, ch- and elect euthanasia, mm-hmm. but people are almost, they're too, it's like they're embarrassed to come to the vet for it. Oh, like, yeah. And, it's, and, and you're like, no, no, it's okay. I think people are scared that vets are constantly going to judge them. Or even like, yeah. not to digress from from death, but like, people come in and their dogs eating all sorts of drugs. Oh Whatever. yeah, might be their own drugs. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really care. Just tell me what the drugs are so I can treat the dog. But they're too scared. They think yeah. you're going to call the cops on them. And they'll. It's like, just tell me your dog had yeah. cocaine. I don't actually care if it. If you do it, I don't care if you're going to do it later. I just tell me yeah. what it's had so I can treat it appropriately. And people are scared or embarrassed, and in that same manner, they're scared or embarrassed to admit that they don't know what to do with their old geriatric animal that's not necessarily in pain, not necessarily dying, but dementia is not necessarily a bad, like, they don't even know that they're present. They can't recognize Mm -hmm. you, and that's a real Mm -hmm. thing in animals, and it's okay for you to make that decision because they're not living their best life. And you're clearly not enjoying their presence either. And if you choose to have them to the bitter end while they're having dementia, that's okay too. It's just such a personal decision and nobody should ever feel judged. 
while they're going through that because you don't know how you're going to be when you have to go through that yourself. And it wasn't that long ago, Amanda, now that I recollect that we had that whole conversation about mm-hmm. your old dog. And that's a hard road because Misha wasn't like she was kind of trotting into her old self for the longest time and it's difficult to make yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I I've 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 been through, you know, death with a, a couple of dogs. It was it's actually it was really interesting sitting here listening to you talk about your process and and sort of the way that you try to interact with clients, you know, when they're coming in or coming to that decision um, and like some of the, you know, the tools mm-hmm. and stuff to help people make decisions, things. Because I, both pets mm-hmm. I've had and pets that have been around growing up, I don't think I've, I, I, we've moved a lot. So I've dealt with a number of different veterinary clinics mm-hmm. over the years in different locations. Yeah. I don't think that any of that has ever been ever part of the process. Really? That's ever happened. It's interesting you say that. Because I feel like I'm very fortunate in the training that I personally have had. And yes, I am a people person. And funnily enough, a lot of veterinary mm-hmm. people aren't people people. They're like, I'm doing this for the animals. And they don't realize that you're going to spend time talking to people and you have to figure out how to be a people person. And if you don't really like people, that's okay too. But I was very fortunate to have good training. However, I don't think that's the case with a lot of uh, because it just depends where you got your training. And some people might have just fell into the veterinary medicine field. Mm-hmm. With, I'm not talking about vets specifically, but nurses. For the longest time, we didn't have yes. a course where you could do vet nursing. You just started working at the vet clinic when you're 16, you're cleaning your cleaning your shit, and then you just learn along the way. Exactly. And that was the case for a long time. Maybe that's only changed in the last 15 years for veterinary mm-hmm. nursing. It depends country to country. So in the past experience, I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't have that experience. Misha dying actually wasn't bad. I mean, we were, we, as you know, we were away at the time. And it was just mm-hmm. a matter of like, pick a clinic, call them and, and tell them that we already know it's time. So, And most people are actually quite okay. Yeah. Like, they're okay with that. As in, like the clinics are fine with that, but often owners. Yeah, don't I mean, know and that so, so that part of that. it was was fine. Yeah, you know, we 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 knew where we were at, and that clinic was actually considering mm. that they didn't know us from Adam, um, was was quite good. You know, they were mm. they gave us a, a reasonable explanation, and they made us. Yeah, pay they first. had us pay first. <laughs> they had us pay yeah. first, <laughs> always first, and it's never because you actually think. No, no, I know. I never paid. It's, I, no, that makes never sense. That. They, but yeah. it looks like it does. But they actually explained the it to us. They're like, "You're gonna, you guys want to just leave?" Yeah, yeah. You know, they were. I think like of all sense. of all the times that I've had to deal with a clinic as far as euthanasia goes, that was probably the best. I mean, as, as good as it can be, and, and especially given that we had no mm-hmm. relationship with the clinic, and we were mm-hmm. fortunate to have friends in that town that could send us the cremation ashes after too but so that's that right. would have been a that's it right. was interesting though because i mean they, they could have even sent us the ashes they did offer us that often they yeah to be honest a lot of yeah. a lot of clinics will do that i've had out of town people come in and then we're just like just give us an address we'll organize yeah. it don't even i was a little bit it. sad though that they i had asked and maybe they misunderstood my question that i was going to get uh, an impression mm-hmm. of of her foot uh, no, like an actual like clay impression because I had one of that with one of those with my first oh, dog and I, I really yes. liked it. It's just a little memento that I keep um, and I didn't get one, which made me a little bit sad. But that's, I mean, neither here nor there really. But it was interesting because they. Yeah. It's usually an extra though that you pay for, right? Well, my understanding, at least with our companies that we use, if there is a separate company that does impressions in clay 
And oh so yeah, no, that was just uh, when I've had animals done before. It was just something that the clinic did. That was, I guess, just part of their package. Yeah. They they did a clay thing. Some some clinics do have Which was, that is inclusive, absolutely, and they just do it anyway. And then other clinics, like for us, for example, mm-hmm. we only do like an ink impression, and then we give them the option of, hey, if you want to do a clay thing, this is the company that you do it through, and I right. will do the clay part yeah. and send it away. But you one thing I, I did find interesting um, with Misha was uh, they didn't mm-hmm. ask one way or the other. They simply informed that they were going to give her some sedation first. So they took her in the back and gave her, I think, a little bit of Ativan mm-hmm. IV and brought her back sedated, mm-hmm. which I was fine with. Mm-hmm. But you didn't know. Well, so the and interesting thing was, I don't know how much they gave her. Obviously, she was a tiny little thing. And since mm-hmm. we're coming to the end anyhow, I don't think people mm-hmm. worry as much about dosing. I'm 99% sure that she was already dead when they brought her back with from the Ativan and that the actual uh, phenobarbital was was just like going through the motions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll well, t- and she was pretty sick. Yeah, too, and, and I'll be honest there, with so. you, that has definitely happened to me before. Mm-hmm. Not intentionally. No, no. I, oh, I didn't think it was intentional, but I... I and it's a sh- and it's like, at least I know, and you're a nurse and that's fine, but when it's like a client and they have no idea in your head, you're like, shit 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 i think this animal was dead already mm-hmm. and you're just bringing it back to them it was weird it's the worst it was weird because for me it was actually all like i looked at her and went i think she's dead from the out of it like i just it, I, I remember thinking in my head really distinctly and it was almost a relief because i had been feeling guilty well what if i could do a little bit more you know she had been so perky up until just a short time before you know even if she was a little bit doddering and old she was clearly mm-hmm. happy with life um, you know, maybe it was missing something, but the fact that it was that easy to tip her balance, I was like, okay, if she's actually really there. sick. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's definitely an interesting. Uh, that's an interesting experience. That that was similar to my dog as well because I she didn't need a lot, mm-hmm. and that's the other thing, right? You know, there's a particular dose for Pento, but for us in animals, it's I think about 0.44 migs per kilo that we use. And that's like we know that the the amount we need to euthanize them. However, I always go over mm-hmm. on purpose because I don't want to deal with any well. zombie animals, right? The, you can't fuck up a murder, as far as I'm told. So, so, um, but the thing is, sometimes they're that sick that you've maybe only gone a quarter into the 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 pentobarbital and they're gone, but the owner doesn't know they're gone, and so you're just pushing through the mm-hmm. rest of it just to like get rid of it because what are you supposed yeah. to do oh whoops we're done yeah don't exactly. eat this but they go and, and some people you want a donkey <laughs> bag for this yeah that's actually Sorry. Really <laughs> it was okay. do you want a doggy bag for that <laughs> that's something you probably shouldn't say <laughs> no to them. no like, how, what would you, how would you like to proceed i'll say that for your bag? dog's watch <laughs> when they go how okay, about that i you. actually amanda i was a little bit bummed that i couldn't be that person i know that's such a weird thing but i have this thing in my head that with all my friends i want to be able to be that special person mm-hmm. that gets to give that that's gift. actually a question i had wanted to ask you thank you for reminding me how mm-hmm. do you find it and with the self-care and the the you know, your process and and all of that doing euthanasias for people that you know personally or pets that you know you've spent time around as a non-veterinary person, just as a human being, yeah. versus yeah. doing it for work, where it's clinical. Mm. That's a very good question. And I, as I've gotten older and I've lost my own pets, and the interesting thing is, all of my friends are now losing their pets as well that they've had since they were in their twenties. No, and we're so all old. 
we're all getting older and the animals are just like, well, hey, next chapter, you know. And it's interesting because I have now gone to that stage where I want to say I enjoy, but I am genuinely, it is a gift to be able to give that to somebody. Mm-hmm. And the, the way I am in a clinical setting when I don't, like I, I have a professional relationship with the, with the client is very different to when it's my friend's mm-hmm. animal. I still try and be as professional in that moment from the point of like, okay, now I'm going to put in the catheter, mm-hmm. this is what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. But I am okay with not being completely composed if it's my friend's dog. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with like however you want to deal with it. I remember I had to do one of my – one of the nurses I worked with, she had an 18-year-old cat. Oh, my goodness. And she – and she cho- like the cat – it was time to go, right? And she had chosen me. And you could sort of pick anyone in your clinic that's like, okay. And she's like, Lena, would you do me the honor of killing my cat? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'd love to. I'm like crying. Like, I'd love to. And I'd gotten to know this cat. I used to look after the cat when they go away on holidays yeah. and whatnot. And so, but all of us, there was like four or five nurses. All of us were around in a circle. We're hugging her. She's hugging the cat. And then you're the one who has to pull the trigger. And there is like a special honor that comes with that and we're bawling our eyes out and that's just part of it you're human you know and it is very different to when it's your friend's animal but even so if if my friends and this is just me personal my own personal experience is if my friend's animal comes into the clinic I'm far more composed because I'm in work zone Mm -hmm. and I do the job and then I'll cry with them later and my 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 recovery process is I often get that person a bottle of whiskey or scotch and I go and have a shot with them afterwards in honour of the pet. Mm-hmm. And, and because you're like, well, they're dying. Your throat feels like it's dying from this disgusting drink. <laughs> and that's, that's, how yeah. we, that's how we deal with it. Uh, but that's what I commonly do. And I'm far more composed when I'm in the clinic. But if they're like, hey, can you come to my house and do it? I am fine in the process of doing the injection and in the process of putting the catheter in. But everyone's crying around you. You cannot not shed a tear. It's do regular it, people do home euthanasias or can they? Not veterinarian? Non, non-vet friends? Like just regular clients? How do you mean? Like if if I didn't know you. You're not a client. If yeah. I'm just a client at your clinic, can I be like, hey, will you do my euthanasia at home? If the vet wants to do that and that's a service they offer, they certainly can they're legally okay like i legally can't technically do it i have to get permission from my vet and be like hey this is it's being done under their license yes but however and that's such a great area so many people will have an opinion on that but that's technically what it Mm -hmm. is but it is legally the responsibility of the veterinarian Mm -hmm. so if like let's say they wanted to do a home euthanasia if the vet chose to do that that's fine. That's totally acceptable. Home euthanasia is kind of a blessing and a curse because it's difficult on the veterinarian because you don't have the proper – sometimes something goes right. wrong or, you know, you can't find a vein or whatever and then you have to deal with the body and then the owners are there watching you put the body into the car. It's mm-hmm. awful to see afterwards. But then again, it's nice. Sometimes I've had I remember we've done like euthanasias at home and I've just sat around afterwards with the family and had a couple of drinks Mm -hmm. and they were like having a party for that animal. So everyone deals with it so differently. And so now that I've seen so many different things, I almost, whatever you choose, I don't really care. I think anything goes, it's just 
such a personal thing. Right. And but there are services out there that just do home euthanasias. I know of a veterinarian who had a business that was purely doctor death. Like they would just people would call them. Because yeah, I imagine some dogs are almost too that sick can to happen in too. Or let's say ways, you're right? a little old granny and you've got a or, great dane and your great right. dane yeah. is incumbent and you can't and you have to euthanize that. Yeah. There are services out there that go and do that, but you have to have a veterinary license for it. Right. You can't just be me disguised as a veterinarian. I'm a vet nurse. I have no license. I have nothing. And then I'm just off willy-nilly right. killing things. I can actually, I'm going to add to the answer for Belina that you asked her about how do you, what hat do you wear with friends mm-hmm. and being professional I make a lot more jokes when I'm with friends. Yeah, but actually, well, that's what I was going to say. I'll, I'll say a specific mm-hmm. story is that I already know Belina story, I and I were there. <laughs> we were, yeah, a, a mutual friend of ours had a My dog that mate. was quite, yeah, here. Well, okay, we say sorry. Well, Canada, we we don't share rooms. We share a house. <laughs> oh. oh, okay. So, well, we don't have me. We Lies. have friends. Okay. Go so, on. anyway, yeah, Melina's mm-hmm. housemate had an old dog that was sick and uh, or just demented. She, she and, was and a reverse Roomba. She, she would just walk yeah. around things, bump into things, and then poop, and then walk into the poop. Exactly. It, bless her cotton and, socks. And she was a cute little dog. Yeah. Sweet dog, but like really yeah. time to go. And it was, and Valina was like really. Very professional and like, and and you know to be like, I, I it's sad to see this dog, but it's also her mm-hmm. dog. I got to let her mm-hmm. do her thing, and then so when it came time to that do that, we went down to the uh, Valina's clinic, and then it was actually funny. My boss, the vet, he he said yeah, to set, me, he goes, "Do you want to do this? You can do this." And, yeah, and I'll, and he goes, "Well, do you want me to do this?" And I was like, "Well, it's up to your call." Was, well, if you want yes. to, you can. This is your yeah. Friend. So that was just us mm-hmm. three in the room, and we're gonna. And she was. She put the catheter in, and then we're. She and, and I didn't do a sedation. Is, is by Valina, the no sedation. And Valina and I are both. Uh, we we dabble in comedy. We're comedians, and so we're trying to keep a composure because we also know this dog is kind of already dead anyway. And then, well, not already um, dead. Friend it's who's dead, not a, dead in spirit, not already dead, but in its soul. In in its soul. That's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so it was. But I mean, we still like it was mm-hmm. very sad. Just, uh, and and our friend had had the dog fifteen for, years what, since she was fifteen, 15. and the dog that's was fifteen. Right. So this is like yeah, big big deal. It's and it's a family pet. And, yeah, and Valina was very professional. She had her, and she's just like you know, we had tears in her eyes, and then and Valina goes to put the the injection in and she's about halfway through the plunge of the syringe and her friend her friend goes no wait i changed my mind i my face and dropped we, for like <laughs> half a second and then then she goes just kidding which is like a terrible laugh. but it was horrible because in my head andrew at that time i was like it probably did because I've overdosed this dog like double, and it's very sick. So I know it's gonna be gone. And it was probably also, dead in her arms at the it time. It was, and it's also kind of the thing she <laughs> yeah, might. It say, might. Right? It might be something that she'd say. And also, even though I want to say I was professional in that moment, I don't recall her signing a consent form at the time. No, probably not. Like, but it was, it was sort of un- the consent yes. was implied, and then yeah. So we're all we all burst out laughing, but then your boss is like, <laughs> "What are they doing in there?" Alina <laughs> comes back, it's like it's done. Yeah, I, w- I literally <laughs> went to the on? back treatment room after it was done. I was like, "She's gone." They're like, why were you guys all laughing? And actually, my yeah. roommate was a bit like, "I just wanted to go surrounded in laughter," <laughs> and I thought that was yeah. nice. <laughs> and it, you can yeah, it only do that with friends. Yeah, I've never that had a client ever say that to me. That's why we have consent forms. That's why we have consent forms and shit is paid for before. And that's why we don't know. 
but you, you can't trust comedians. <laughs> yeah. When the non-comedian gets you laughing, it's kind of... But anyway, yeah. So that was... I don't know. I think that's a good way to end it, actually, because you're... I actually... I do have... Well, I have two more questions. I have one more, sure. like, that question, and the one just, like, a general podcast no, question. No, no. So as much as I hate to say the C word because I try to avoid it, mm. I have to ask how COVID has affected the process. Ah, that oh, oh, going I with a different C word. Like, yes, do it, do it. <laughs> no, that's that's your Australian C word. I will leave that to you. <laughs> well, COVID has been a cunt, could I say? <laughs> um, the way it's affected us, particularly in the veterinary industry, and every clinic can choose to deal with it however they want. But I, during the, when the pandemic actually hit uh, at the beginning, I was actually stuck in Australia. So I was working in my old practice and we didn't know how it was going to go about, like what should we should do. So that actual hospital split up into two teams. We had team A, team B. Team A would work one week, team B would work another week. That way, if the hospital, if one team got infected, then the hospital mm-hmm. would keep. I'm assuming that's what happened a lot with human no. hospitals. Okay, <laughs> maybe not. It's 17 teams, <laughs> I, and they're all playing against each other. So, so that's how we, we, that's how they dealt with it there. And then what they would do specifically with clients was, we would only allow one client in the room for a euthanasia, and they would have to have a a, a mask, and then we would be fully mask gowned, and it'd be like a double extension set, and we'd be on one side of the room with 50 mils of flush because you're flushing <laughs> through the line. And that's you would only allow them to be there for five minutes. That it was it's terrible when it comes to euthanasia. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of treatment, it would be like you'd get the client to one person in the building at a time. Can you imagine that in emergency when you're triaging everything? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So they'd bring in you'd have one person in the building. They'd put their animal in. You would have done basically everything over the phone first, like in terms of history yeah. and whatnot. They place the animal in the consult room. They walk out. They go back to their car. Then we hop into the consult room. We assess what they've said. Then we call them, get permission to do the treatments that we request. It's like so lengthy, mm-hmm. so bloody frustrating. It's crazy. Has it evolved as COVID has gone on and on and on and on? I left just as we stopped doing Team A, Team B. So I left Australia in June and we went back to being a functioning hospital, but we still weren't allowing clients in the room. It was just one at a time mm-hmm. in the building. And so that persisted. Now, I don't know how they're handling it over there and Australia has changed significantly in that period of time with COVID and whatnot. But when I got back to Canada, the way we were dealing with it was we went to full curbside, which some clinics are not doing that. Some clinics, actually I'll get into that, but we went into full curbside, which means we do everything over the phone. We just go out to the car. We collect the animal. We bring it in. And... It's a nightmare in terms of logistics and how it stretches out the process. However, for me personally in the clinic, I bloody love it because I've got music blasting. I can be cussing. I don't have to worry about like clients in the consult rooms and whatnot. Plus, I get to spend all that actual time dealing with the pet mm-hmm. and not so much the client mm-hmm. because now I can really see what's going on rather than you telling me about how Fluffy 10 years ago fell off the couch and now whatever, mm-hmm. right? And so it's been an interesting for us in terms of our medicine. I feel like our medicine has gotten better, but our customer service has gone shit. I think everyone's and, had. And that's everyone's. And it's not on purpose. And honestly, clients are also just rude. They think they want everything straight away. Or I'll have clients that will come in and they'll complain. They will say, 
hey, if if my pet can go in, what, if I can go in to see the doctor, why can't I go in with my pet? And it's like, this is for your safety and ours. And also, do you want us to shut down and then you have no vet? So like, are you still allowing one person in for euthanasias or? We allow we allow two people in for euthanasias here in, in our my clinic that I work in in Canada. And every clinic is different. Right. Some clinics will only do a Zoom meeting for euthanasia. Some clinics will not allow anyone. Other people, they'll have a different person. They'll allow you in the consult room, but you have to have a mask on. So every clinic has kind of been dealing with their own. I guess everyone's making their own guidelines and whatnot. And, yeah. But we... It's silly in the sense where, like, there's no unity, right? And we just got to do what we got to do to take care of ourselves so that we have a job at the end of the day and then we can still deliver the service that needs to happen. Because at the end of the day, I don't really care about your feelings. I care about making sure the animal is okay. Mm-hmm. And that's just the, the crux of it. And it sucks because you need to still have some form of good customer service because you do want that reoccurring relationship for the animal's sake and for the sake of your business as well. So that has certainly been a difficult thing, having to deal with clients being impatient or maybe they don't want to wear a mask. And you know what? I don't really care. Just let me do my job so I can do it as quickly as possible and I can get on to the next person. But Mm -hmm. people are selfish and they make it all about themselves and it's difficult because often it impedes the actual thing that we're doing for the animal. Right, right. So that's kind of how it's been handling at the moment. I think we're going to be curbside for a while. A, a while longer oh yeah and and my and we're so bloody busy because there's pandemic puppies everywhere because people are lonely so they're just adopting animals left right and center and then like oh i don't like how we're looking you poor a little too much and then it has to come into the clinic for some absurd reason people are just spending a lot of time with their mm-hmm. pet they're noticing things that might not be actually wrong with them or there's just been an influx of pet ownership so now we're really busy and yet we want to stay open for the animal's sake, but people are not respecting that things are going to take a little bit longer and things are slower and, and it, it can be deaf. It's it been a challenge to say the least. Okay. So I would like to do a wrap up question. This mm-hmm. is one, feel free to apply it either to veterinary care or to yourself as you feel fit. How mm. would you describe a good death? What would that mean to you? For myself personally or just in the veterinary field? Whatever you like. Mm. For myself personally, I'd like to go the way my dog went. In all honesty, like a on skateboard. a skateboard? Yeah. She did go on a skateboard. Uh, she didn't yeah. get run over by a skateboard though. No, no, no. No, I'd like to go in the way that I see a lot of our pets go. They come in, they're surrounded by loved ones. They're at the end of their life. Yes, okay, we make that decision for them as as owners, but at the same time, you you see that there's love in that animal's eyes and you're giving them a gift. I just want to go like that. It's so peaceful. I don't want to die drowning in my own lung fluid or um, whichever. I don't know. There's a million ways to die, right? And mm-hmm. I would like to go with humane euthanasia, and that's because I see it all the time, and it is honestly the kindest thing you can do. That's how I'd like to go. What was the other part of the question, Mandy? That's, that's yeah. it. Okay, well, that's how I'd <laughs> like to go. I, I thought there was another part of the question with the animals. No, that's how, I'd like to go like an animal. Yeah. Surrounded yeah. by your, with your blanket. And yeah, of ball, course. Though. Cremate me with it too. Yeah. And my collar. <laughs> yeah, okay. I don't yeah, want my collar around a dog dish. We're, no, we're going to taxidermy. Oh, that's that, that, so yeah. why I asked that question. Make yeah. sure he has yeah. the marbles all picked out for your eyes. For my eyes? Yeah. Green ones, please. <laughs> that's okay. Fair. Okay, we, we'll make a concession. <laughs> 
you know, they always say, oh, that person died like a dog or they died like an animal or whatever. And they always say it in a negative mm. connotation. But actually, from my experience, I've seen human death and I've seen animal death and it's a lot nicer the way we do it. Yeah, no, definitely. I'd like to go like I'd like to go like my dog. I'd like to be surrounded by loved ones, say my goodbyes, be told I was a good girl. And off That's I go. good. <laughs> I like it. All right, plug your podcast and then we'll get out of here. Oh, right. So I have a podcast with my assistant, Brittany Hartfelder. Uh, it's called I Killed Your Dog. And it is the podcast that kills all your expectations of the veterinary industry. Everyone thinks our, our industry is all puppies and kittens, but it's not. So we talk about all the things that happen behind closed doors completely uncensored and unfiltered for your ears. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Cool.